Hello, and welcome to a Third Degree Burn St. Paddy's Day replay. This is an episode that Brian and I recorded back in 2016. It was episode 11. Uh, we are covering the greenest of superheroes, Green Lantern, and a story that features little blue men that could possibly be leprechauns. So grab a pint, sit back, and enjoy Green Lantern, Ganthet's Tale. Save time in a bottle. The first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away, just to spend them with you. If I could make days last forever, if words could make wishes come true. Save every day like a treasure And then again I would spend them with you But there never seems to be enough time To do the things you want to do once you find them Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. My name is Brian Hughes and joining me is my friend Tim Elliott. Say hi, Tim. Greetings, people of Earth. That's 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 my Ganthet voice. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's not really. I I would have I would have thought it would be like Jimmy Stewart. You know, but... <laughs> you think Ganthet sounds like Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's the only old guy I could think of. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, we'll have to see. Um, if you haven't guessed, uh, the book that we're going to be looking at today is Green Lantern: Ganthet's Tale by John Byrne and Larry Niven. Uh, for those who don't know, Larry Niven, of course, is an award-winning science fiction writer and um, kind of uh, a different sort of fellow. I don't know if you've ever seen his interviews or anything, but he is definitely, you know, living on a different plane. I've seen, I watched a few, in prep for doing this book, I watched a few YouTube uh, videos of him, and, and yeah, he seems a little... Uh, Out there. Like he's living his own little world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I would love to hear the story of how the two of these guys got together for this. Oh, actually, I have a little information on that. Really? Yeah. Well, of course, Larry Niven is best known for for probably his Ringworld uh, work series of books, which are set in what I think is called the Known Space. That's mm-hmm. the universe he's created. And now, he, did oh. didn't he also write Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex? He did. He wrote okay. that in 69, so... Yeah, I wonder if Kevin Smith read that before he made his movies. Supposedly, he hasn't. Now, that's the story. People that, you know, he he brought... Some of that is brought up in Mallrats. Mm-hmm. And somebody approached him after or during the filming or after that situation and told him about the uh, essay that Niven had wrote, written and he about because there was so much similarity between it. According to, I guess, Smith, he did not read it. He wasn't... Uh, cribbing from it or referencing it. He came up on those, those ideas on his own, but I, I've kind of heard that kind of stuff from other people, so it's not like 
I think Niven, well, he might have been if he wrote it in 69. That's that's a ways back. Yeah, but, you know, something like that, you know, anybody that's read it is is bound to repeat it in conversation. Yeah. I think given the the, the group of, of friends that Smith has and the, the types of conversations, especially someone like Brian Johnson or Walt Flanagan, but Brian Johnson seems more likely to have read something like along the lines of that that he probably would have brought that up in conversation and Smith probably would have used it. True. Because uh, uh, Smith did, you know, work a lot. You know, I mean, Brian Johnson helped him put together a lot of his stuff. He didn't write it, but he helped him put a lot of his stuff together. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised in that. I'm not going to say that that's actually what happened, but that would be my supposition. And it could be something, it's one of those things like you've, something that gets repeated, you hear it as a kid, it keeps getting repeated and repeated so that, you kind of absorb it, not you know. You're not consciously plagiarizing. I don't even want to, that's not even the right word, but uh, yeah, he may have just subconsciously realized that's where he, he didn't know realize where he got it from. True, true. Yeah. Anyway, so what can you tell us about Ganthet's tale? Well, or do, you, or do you, is there anything you want to cover before we actually jump onto the book itself? Yeah, there's a few things, um, and then I'll, I'll bring some stuff up when we when we get to the actual synopsis of this uh, prestige one shot. Right. Uh, I wanted to quickly, well, I'll let you go first because there's something we talked about off mic, but I'll let you bring up quickly about John Byrne doing a coloring book. Yeah. Um, well, well, we'll go ahead and put the link for that on the uh, Two True Freaks page. But uh, yeah, Byrne had actually gotten someone, well, someone had actually written on Byrne's uh, webpage, the Byrne Robotics in the forum, you know, asking him if he'd ever considered doing a, a coloring book, you know, like the Avengers or, you know, one of the Marvel characters or something. And in the discussion before Byrne even got involved, you know, other people had shot that down basically because it's licensed material and he'd have to go through them to do it. But he got in and started talking about maybe providing his own material. And then he started sampling material out on the on there, you know, seeing what people thought. And as the thread has gone on, he's actually gone and talked to his people or whoever and made arrangement for him to go ahead and produce an adult comic, uh, adult coloring book. Now, I am completely unaware of the whole adult coloring book thing that's going on right now. So, Tim, can you tell me a little, a little about it? Well, First, I'll say it's not adult and you thinking, oh, that's an adult book. No, it just means there's a I don't want to say it's a fad. There's a thing going around that it's there are adult coloring books that are mostly patterns or geometric shapes or flowers or things of that nature, animals that adults will color. And it's supposed to help relieve stress. My wife has a couple and she enjoys them quite a bit. Are they a bit more intricately designed? Than they are. Like a, it's a child. Okay. Right. It's it's something you might want to color with uh, a sharpened colored pencil or markers. Or, I mean, you could even do it with a pencil and just do it in shades of gray if you wanted to. It's really whatever you want to do. But, yeah, they are. They're not as quite as simplified as a as a kitty book would be. Yeah. So it makes sense, some of the images that he'd put up on, on his website. Because they seem to be almost, I don't know how to describe it. You, you mentioned they kind of looked like um, Mobius. Yes, that was my first impression when I saw it. And I was thinking almost kind of a, a steampunk or heavy metal influence on there. But then again, you know, I see that Mobius too. I definitely, metal, so. yeah. Well, that, that kind of ties in with the Mobius, doesn't it? Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, that's pretty interesting. And I thought that was really cool. I, I like, 
I like the fact that, you know, with the Fumetti, with the coloring book, that Byrne is stretching out into other mediums and he's finding, hopefully he's finding a market. I don't know how the, the coloring book will, will, will do. It'll uh, sell. I, I think it'll sell well to Byrne fans. I mean, I would certainly pick it up. I know you would. Yeah, but is it going to show up in a comic book store? Is it going to show up, you know, Walmart? Are you going to have to go to the, the major, you know, box stores in order to be able to find this thing? Or are you going to have to order it online I, through Amazon? I'm sure Amazon will have it. I know I, know, I, have, I haven't seen these adult coloring books in the big box stores. I've seen them mostly in Barnes & Noble. Barnes so and, okay. you would find it. I'm sure you would find Burns' book there. I'm sure you'd find it in uh, your local comic store because it's Burn. You know, they know it's going to sell. Well, and, and see, that's this is Burns' argument with with most of the the comic book world is that, or not not his argument, but what's been bugging him. You know, we said we don't talk about um, Burns, you know, character or anything like that. But one of the things that that he seems to be finding a lot of and talking about a lot of on his forum is that there are a lot of people that have bad attitudes towards him. Mostly it seems to be in the form of comic book shop people that have said burn books don't sell. Now, what my experience in that is, is that burn books sell at a certain amount. You can always guarantee when burn is going to be working on a book that it's going to sell X thousands of books. Yeah. I mean, he, and, and, you have to look at the fact that he is working for one of the more, you know, the, like an independent. He's not working for the big two. Right. And one, comic books themselves are not selling at the rate they used to. And Well, I'm, I'm actually talking going back into the, the 90s and the 2000s. You know, when Byrne was working on like X-Men, The Hidden Years or any of those books, he had people following him to whatever book. I mean, I, I when I was following him, I was, you know, following him to every book that he was on. And I'd pick up the books, even if I didn't read them, I'd still buy the books. I bought the, all the Wonder Woman, but I didn't read them. I stopped. Uh, I mean, you know, it was kind of it was kind of the time when my comic book interest was was I, I don't want to say my interest, but my enjoyment of comic books was waning uh, in that period in the mid '90s. And then, of course, I got married and things changed. And um, the but you know what was happening with him is that as he would move from book to book. He would have that that core group of people that would follow him from book to book. So yeah, I, a I guarantee of sales there. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. I would a lot of times and, when he left a book, I would stop reading the book. But right, but so he always had X amount built sales into any one book or another. Now, as he started getting into more niche books, I'm sure that probably you know, especially when they weren't like the main stable of characters. Now, Jack Kirby's Fourth World, I, I, I have no idea how that did in sales. But, you know, unless you start getting characters like the Justice League characters, you know, the the the, the Trinity or, or whatever involved, you know, there's the sales is probably only going to be a certain amount. And again, I think he was on that for like two years, wasn't he? Oh, I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Uh. But but, you know, say, you know, saying that it, as far as it goes. A comic book shop is not necessarily, and even today especially, is not going to sit there and say, "Oh, it's John Byrne art. Let's you know throw it out there and and you know see if everybody buys it." I go into a comic book shop and I ask, you know, do you have any Byrne trades or Fumetti? And they look at me like, "Who?" 
And I actually have to show them. You say, here, look, see these X-Men books? See, this is Bernard. Wow, that's beautiful. I'd never seen that before. Yeah, if they're they're young enough. But, I mean, compare him to, say, Claremont. How well was or Claremont books? After, I mean, these are guys that were really hot in the 80s mm-hmm. up until the, the, the early 90s. So past that, past the, you know, once the verbal pops and you get into the, you know, the two, you know, 2000s, how well are, are guys that were considered really popular established artists that are, I don't want to say they're not over the hill, they're not past it, they're not obsolete, but they're, they have been kind of replaced by a new crop of younger, hotter artists. You know, that's just, it's all cyclical. I mean, that happens. Yeah. But here's, here's the thing, um, from the late seventies, eighties and nineties, you had this, this core group of readers that stayed with the books, stayed with comics, people that, that should have stopped reading, you know, within five years, the comic book companies thought that people were only going to stay with the books for five years before a new group of people would come in, but it wasn't happening. You had this group of people, myself included, who stayed with the books as they growed and changed with us. As we matured, the books matured. Peter Parker was actually aging, you know, Superman went from being eternally 29 to 35 to whatever. And, you know, we, 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 we were sitting there growing with it and we were liking the fact that they were growing up with us. And then at some point here, the big two said, you know what, these guys, you know, they're still buying the books, but we need to get newer people. So they turned their back on us. And that's why they're going for those younger artists. They know that if they want to bring us back, they get the, you know, George Perez to work on the book or, you know, someone from from those days or Art Adams or Neil Adams. Um, But in in most cases, they're going to sit there and find those younger artists and writers. I think, yeah, I I think you can almost do a parallel with the film industry because the art style was changing. You were getting influences from... uh, Liefeld, uh, McFarlane, you know, that mm-hmm. whole group of guys that were coming up in the, the, the end of the eighties and into the nineties. And that is what the kind of, I think the, the style and the storytelling kind of shifted to more f- faster and Flash younger substance. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Faster and more intense and not necessarily more intense, just faster. And it was all about, more visual and less storytelling I felt. And I think that is and same with the film industry kind of, I mean, compare how a film is made now to when a film was made in the eighties. And it's just, it's just everything. It's just sped up. And right. I think that is maybe why these artists kind of were considered again, I don't want to say obsolete, but they were considered the older order and the new guys were the new kids were going to replace them. And that's what maybe they thought that's what the kids were. And, you know, when the craze hit in the early 90s, when there were comic shops popping up everywhere and there were, you know, Marvel's putting out like 50 or 100 books a month, you know, just before everything collapsed in on itself. Right. With all the the 3D covers and the Oh, yeah. Everything. It was just when, you know, when Valiant was there and Image, everything was just so super hot. And I don't know if these guys just didn't want to felt they didn't want to change or they didn't want to adapt or the industry. It's almost like the industry kind of left them behind because they were looking for a younger audience. And that's, I mean, look at, again, I'm drawing a parallel to film. 
look at the way studios are. Here's my prime example. Look at Star Trek, the first Abrams Star Trek, mm-hmm. compared to the original series uh, movies. Yeah. You know, the Shatner movies. That is, they think this is what the audience wants. Well, so that's this what they is gave what them. Ma- this is what mainstream audience wants, and ultimately, that's the market that they want. Yeah, you know, we were the built-in audience for so many years, but. You know, the thing is, when it gets down to it, they don't care about us. You know, they'll come to us and cherry pick us for ideas. But ultimately, what they really want is they want the the popcorn crowd to come in and see the movie. Yeah. And if they can get all of them to come in and, st- and piss us off, that's fine by them. Because well, that's still going to get them half a billion dollars. Well, yeah. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I mean, I don't want to say you're taking it personally, but you have to look at it that these guys are running a business. And right. their their job is to make money. Right. And if they can make money by doing A, they're not going to do B, even if B is the loyal group that has been following them for 30 years. I, I understand your point, but I kind of I see their point, too. I understand why they do it, even though Again, I don't I, I like I'm it. Not, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm not I, I'm not saying that they're stupid for doing what they're doing. They're trying to make money. And that's, you know, ultimately what they're going to do. What. You know, I mean, I, I think the, the thing that gets me is that right now, and, and this is a bit of a change of subject, right now, the biggest problem that we have, and this goes directly to guys like Byrne, is that there are people, and, and this is also true of Marvel, Disney, and Fox, is that people with egos are involved. And so therefore it's going to be very hard to get the people together that you want to get together. You want Burn to get back into the Marvel sandbox or the DC sandbox. But as long as the management there is the people that are there right now, it's not going to happen because they, they don't want to work with him. He doesn't want to work with them. And it's the same with you know Marvel and Fox. They could make so much money together if they would just get over themselves and work together. Oh, you're talking about the film. Yeah. Well, that's, again, yeah. that's all about, they don't want to give up their little piece of the pie, even though in the long run, they're not thinking down the, few, down the line that they well, may not, get a bigger not, piece of the pie. The thing is they're sitting there saying, well, if we, if we can do it right on our own, then we can make X, you know, millions of dollars. But if they would do it right with Marvel and Disney, they could make that much money and more, keep the rights. They just got to work with them. That's all. And that may be, we don't know what's being negotiated right by this very moment behind, you know, behind the scenes. So, well, I, no, they, they won't negotiate. That's the problem. Fox will not negotiate with, with, you know, Disney on the Fantastic Four. Well, they, Fox has got a little more leverage than Sony because Sony had just Spider Man and right. the last two movies weren't doing so hot. So they were kind of, had to look at the bigger picture and think, well, we can either reboot it again or we can, you know, try to make a deal. Fox has got the X-Men franchise, which mm-hmm. was sagging, but the last two movies have really pumped it up. They've got a big boost in the arm from Deadpool, which nobody expected that to be doing the kind of money it's doing. So they... You, I, you, you realize that Man of Steel has already surpassed Deadpool, right? I mean, not Man of Steel, Batman v Superman. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd, ex- has, has I'd expect it to because... The, for that type of movie, but Deadpool is not. Deadpool is a kind of film you you would it would be doing, uh, 
Punisher type levels or. Right. But you see, the thing is, Deadpool is being touted as a blockbuster. All right. As a Jaws, as far as, you know, bringing in the money. Now, part of that is the fact that it had a budget of like $60 million and then, you know, spent another $60 million on marketing. I think they actually spent a bit more than that. But they've made all their money back and then some. Oh, yeah. I and mean, so financially for them, it is a huge hit. Whereas Batman v Superman, they've spent $400 million or more on the, the budget and marketing and everything. So they have to make like a billion dollars to be considered a success. Right. It just depends on what you would have defined Blockbuster as. Is it stri- strictly uh, ticket sales and and the amount it brings in, or is it the return on your investment? If that's the case, I guarantee you, if you look at it that way, they're making more on Deadpool than they are on Batman Superman, even though it's probably, it's going to make, ultimately make more, Yeah, but it costs more. So, I mean, it just depends what you want to... I know, but the thing is, like, just as many people have gone to see Batman v Superman as have gone to see Deadpool. Yeah, I'm not saying Deadpool's better or making more my my point was that Deadpool is making was more successful than they thought it would be. Right. And that just one, it's gonna it's gonna give that's why I think we're getting the last the next Wolverine movie is gonna be R rated. They are thinking, oh, these R rated superhero movies make Not money. Not only that, but they're going to release Batman v Superman R rated cut to the theaters here. Oh so I didn't know that. And, I, yeah, I knew they're the, gonna do that. See if they can sit there and boost up those ticket sales some I more. knew the uh the DVD was going to be R-rated. Yeah. No, or they, they, unrated or whatever someone, they call it. Someone kind of got a little – I think this is actually kind of a, a smart stunt. I think it's going to give them some extra ticket sales to, to help, you know, you know make, the, make the bottom line look better for well, it. Absolutely. People – already people that have seen it want to go back and see it to say what they add. What's the difference? You know, what, you know, what level of violence do they ramp it up to to make it R-rated? You know, are we going to see Amy Adams come out of the bathtub? I'm pretty sure it's going to be a blood situation. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be violence. It's not going to be a naked Amy. Yeah, Adams. yeah. But I think uh, we'll probably get to see Jenna Malone in whatever character she is, or maybe we'll get to see what happened to Robin. You know. Yeah, it could be a flashback or something. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, I think we've covered everything else. Do you want to go ahead and get into the book? Well, actually, there's two. Actually, there's. Oh really? One thing I'm going to ignore. Uh, there are. Two things, three things I want to talk about quickly. We'll go over them real quick. All right. And they're all trailers. Have you seen Doctor Strange trailer? Yes. What absolutely. did you think? You know, I I was so I'm a, I'm so excited for it. I'm so excited for the movie, but I would really like to shoot the person that put the trailer together because I think that they picked the scenes that reminded them of other big movies. You know, they said, "Hey, let's pick this scene that looks like Inception." Let's pick the scene that looks like The Matrix, you know, and put that in there. And so now, you know, there's a lot of a lot of crap on the web about how it's just a ripoff of all those movies. Oh, I, don't, I haven't I haven't really read anything about it. I just I know, I've only seen it. I watched it a couple of times, but I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting. I thought uh, and I probably read this and forgot that Tilda Swinton was going to be the ancient one. Oh, yeah, I know. She, that, that, that right there was just great. That that whole and Scott Gardner made a comment on Facebook about you know get, getting hit so hard your soul gets knocked out. Of you. 
that was just that was just a beautiful uh, setup right there. And I, I again, this movie I'm really really looking forward to. November can't get here soon enough. The only thing I don't like about it is, and I guess it's the voiceover. And I'm assuming that's Cumberbatch as Strange doing a kind of an American voice. I yeah. don't like the voice he's picked. It sounds a little whiny. I, I always kind of thought of Doctor Strange sounding like Dave, kind of like David Niven or Michael Rainey. Kind of a not a British accent, but kind of a cultured New England kind of accent, you know, something like that. So like like Liam Neeson in the Taken movies. Yeah, I could even yeah, I could even go with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if you could get Liam Neeson to do the voices, wouldn't you get him to do all the voices? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't expect you know, I don't expect Cumberbatch to have somebody uh, you know to loop him, but and that, and once we see the film, I don't know, you know, I don't know what what it's going to sound like. So I don't, I mean. Strange, I guess, has always been a New York, so he would have kind of a New York, maybe a cultured kind of New York accent. I don't know. I mean, they never, nobody ever, look at Tobey Maguire. He doesn't have a, have a Queens accent, does he? No, he's got very Midwestern accent. Yeah. Would he sound like Paul Spataro? <laughs> you think. Wouldn't he? But, but, you know, I mean, my own background, you know, I, I was born in Minnesota and spent uh, you know my early years there and then outside of Boston, and so it you know as I was growing up, I worked very very hard to get rid of those accents because they all just kind of form up on you. Did you have a Boston kind of a Boston accent? Well, I, I had kind of a cross between a Boston accent and a Minnesota accent. Yeah. Wow. Wow. You know, you know it just and it creeps up on me when I get <laughs> when I get uh, really really sleepy or uh, drunk. Oh, wanna, so, wanna, yeah, well, so, you, you can no. talk to Chris Tyler. You can. Uh... <laughs> no, I uh, so I, I worked very long and hard uh, to to get away from all that. But one of the the benefits, though, is in, in well, it's also a detriment too, yeah, considering how much time I spend on the phone these days, is that I can pick up a lot of the the verbal tics and accents of the people that I'm talking with. And I don't intentionally do it. But if someone is talking to me with a bit of an accent, let's say that I was talking to, you know, Chris and Cindy Franklin, I'd start talking with their accent, you know, it'd just come out. That's the way it'd be. If I was talking to Matthew McConaughey, I'd ease on into that Matthew (laughs) McConaughey voice. That's not unusual because when the first time I was in, first time I went to Ireland, and I was over there for about a week. So I would spend a lot of time, you know, mm-hmm. around Irish people. You find yourself wanting to kind of mimic their accent. It's weird. Yeah. I don't know what it, it's, 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 you're not making fun of them. You're not trying to no. parody them. It's just, you just want to start Establish talking like rapport. them. You start, you start establishing rapport with whoever it is you're, you're, you're talking to. And especially when you're immersed in something, you, you start, you start doing that. Um, when I was in college, I took a uh, 12-week, four-day, four-hour-a-day Spanish intensive, all two years of the Spanish you're required to take in college. I took it over 11 weeks in an intensive. I, and I did wow. this with a kidney stone. Uh, but <laughs> by the end of the uh, 11 weeks, I was speaking Spanish uh, rather well. Unfortunately, I did not immerse myself into it after I got out of the class and within like a year I'd lost it all. It was just yeah. gone. I took three years of German and I know very, very little of it because you're, if you're not using it, 
you're not right. going to continue it's to funny it up. My dad's fluent in German and he still has it today. And he got it from when he was, you know, I think high school. Yeah. It just depends if you use it. I never, it's yeah. like my music. I played, I played the violin for eight years and right now I, I, I don't think I can even read music because I, 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 I haven't done it. I can still read bass clef. Um, I can't, I, I, you know, treble clef. Um, I, I didn't do as much on that as I did bass clef and I can still play a trombone. It's been 30 years and I picked up one a couple weeks ago. Uh, we, we were, we were looking for, uh, a thing for my wife and we'd gone into a pawn shop and, uh, so I was, I was checking out the trombone and I was mm-hmm. looking at, looking at a guitar, see if, see if I could find a good guitar for Christopher, but yeah, go anyway. to the, the, the full Riker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Last thing I want to ask about it. We'll do this real quick. Cause we, we got to get to our let, show. Let, let me guess. Rogue one. I was going to ask about rogue one, but I've only watched the trailer once. So I'll hold off on that. Now the one I'm much more upset about is the Ghostbusters trailer. Oh. And I don't, I normally don't get on a soapbox. I normally don't get really irate about things that make me mad. I try, I try to just kind of keep it cool, but that movie looks wrong in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to wind up going to see it though. Cause my wife and son, I'll, I'll, I'll wind it. up going to see it. But you know, the thing is, is that, that what I understand about Ghostbusters is this, that first movie is a perfect movie. It's lightning in a bottle. There's very few perfect movies out there, but that's one of them. You're never going to be able to recapture that. You know, there were so many things they had going for them and they had so many things going against them, but you know, they, they, it worked, you know, even without Eddie Murphy, even without John Belushi, it worked. I think it, I think it works better. Despite, I think if Belushi was in it, it wouldn't have been as strong a movie. And I certainly think if Murphy was in it, that would have been too much star power going on. Yeah, it I would think. have been it would have been a a, t- a tug of war. Yeah, yeah, I think that wouldn't have worked as well. Yeah, and the, and the and I'll just say this quickly: it's not it's not that it's an all female cast. That is not my problem. It just doesn't look funny. It looks like it's trying too hard. It looks they're going with kind of a gross out theme to it. They're not. It just looks wrong. I, I mean, it's hard for me to describe what I don't like about it, and it, it's probably because I can't. Um, got my you know. Ghostbuster glasses on and that's anything that's not Ghostbusters that I'm going to react to but I don't, I don't one it's I wasn't a fan of Bridesmaids at all and I know this is the same director pretty sure yeah Paul Feig yeah, yeah. and I didn't I went to we went to see Bridesmaids because everybody was talking about how funny it was and Vanilla and I both walked out like what what was everybody what did what movie did they see because we didn't see the same film that was not a funny film now, you know I, I think that what a couple things is that you have when when you see a comedy, you have to see it with a good crowd. If the crowd is not into it, the movie is going to fail. I don't care what it is, you know. Yeah, well, our crowd was into it. It was we were just say like, two sitting in there by ourselves, looking at each other, going, "This was supposed to be really funny, right?" And everybody else was laughing. Oh, they they were laughing their butts off. See, laughter is contagious to me. You know, it, I, I mean, I actually someone had sent me a video of a guy just laughing and I could not help myself. I started laughing. It, it, it's, hmm. I remember I saw this really, really bad comedy called uh, night patrol. And it starred the guy that was the unknown comic. The guy with and, a paper bag on his head. Yeah. And uh, this was an eighties comedy movie coming around at the same time as police Academy and all that stuff. 
And it was a Friday night. My friends and I all went and we went to a, a late a late show, like a 9 p.m. or 11 p.m. show. And it seemed like half the audience in there was blitzed, blotto out of their mind, you know. And everybody was laughing so much. We had such a great time. And I remember like a year or so later, it the, the movie comes up on HBO and I said, hey, dad, we got to watch this. This is really funny. And we just sat there and it was just really, really sad and pathetic, except for one moment in the movie. Um, they were making a lot of um, Superman jokes in there. They had a, a woman whose name in there was Sue Perman. <laughs> and uh, the boss kept saying, I don't need any crap tonight from you, Perman. You know, <laughs> so, but that, that wasn't even the, the best part. The best part was uh, the guy was talking to his uh, psychiatrist. And he says to him, you know, I, 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 I like Edith, but I also like Kate. And the psychiatrist uh, who was actually one of the patients on the Bob Newhart show, uh, I don't remember his name, though. Um, he says to him, Kate, have your Kate, Kate and Edith, you're, too. You're, you're going to get your Kate and Edith, too. <laughs> See, that, that joke is telegraphed. One, one guy in the audience goes, oh, ha, ha. And he just turns out to the audience and goes, oh, ha, ha, yourself. <laughs> So it was one of those things. My dad did the exact same thing. We're sitting there watching the movie at home. And the guy says, I, I bet you'll get your Kate and Edith too. And my dad goes, oh, ha, ha. And he turns out, oh, ha, ha, yourself. And that just made my dad, you know, roll on the floor laughing, you know. But it was it was just that was the only good setup joke in the entire movie. <laughs> the rest of the movie was just horrible. Oh, I have, I have to say I've never, I've never heard of it and I've never seen it. Yeah, well. Don't don't rush out. <laughs> oh, as soon as we as soon as we get off the air here, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and get it. All right. Well, what else you got? Nothing really. I was I was well. I'll take this real quick because we're gonna have a five hour show here. Yeah. Uh, so, somebody had posted on Facebook today, and I think it was uh, Trentas that AMC is going to start courting people with their text friendly theaters. Have you read that? Um. Yeah, I saw that. That right. was just, I thought, well, I mean, first I'm like, that's that's nuts. Then, of course, everybody pipes in like, well, it makes you make sense. Take the textures out of our theater, send them to that one, solve your problem. I've never, ever had a problem in a the theater with someone texting around me. No. Now, I, I have seen like someone several rows away. Uh, doing that, but now that the theaters are making use of the recliners, the electric recliners, the ones that we're going to, mm -hmm. you don't even see the people on the lower rows anymore. Yeah, because it's such a such a drop. So I don't even notice it anymore if they're doing it. You know, someone says, "Oh, it puts up so much light and everything." I don't notice it. I don't. I, you know, I mean, I'm watching what's going on on the screen. Yeah, I have more problems with people talking. I've had. You know, situations yeah. where tell somebody now, to be quiet. If someone's phone goes off. That's different. That's a different matter. Were you with us when that phone went off by us? I don't remember if it was when we, were, when we all went to see the movie or not recently. Yeah, someone just like three seats over, their phone went off on this major siren. You know, it sounded like a police siren going <laughs> off. And it had red lights and everything was blinking. It was really, really like some sort of ostentatious display. And I guess that was supposed to mean it was a serious call. Someone really trying to get through that had to get through. Uh, take it outside. Yeah, exactly. 
you know, but, you know, then again, you're going to have some small interruptions, but I I don't see this whole texting thing as a big deal at no, all. I don't see it. I, my, I was more outraged with the uh, head of AMC's attitude that, well, uh, I think he was quoting as being millennials that because they live so much on their phone that it's unreasonable to ask them to turn their not text for two hours. I'm like, uh, I don't think so. You're asking them not to talk. Can't they not text too? They don't have yeah. to have phone with them all the time, but that's just us being grumpy old men. <laughs> get off my lawn. Get off, get off my lawn and shut your phone off. All right. Uh, you got anything else? No. Why don't we take a break? Yes. And we'll plug a promo and we'll come back and uh, we'll get into Ganthus Token. It's a little meaty book, so it's going to take yeah. us a while to get through it. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we are back. Yes. And as stated previously, we are covering Green Lantern, Ganthet's Tale. And I will give a little information about this. It is a, published by DC Comics, of course. And it had a cover date of September 1992. A cover price of $5.95, which was a lot back then. It has 64 pages. And it's a like a square bound... I guess they consider this Baxter paper, wouldn't they? Yeah. How much was it again? $5.95. You know, that's that's actually not that big a surprise because you, you go all the way back to 85, 86, when they first started the prestige format, Dark Knight Returns and things like that. Those were $5 a copy, like four ninety five. Were they? I thought my Dark Knight was three ninety nine, but I could be wrong. My uh, The memory cheats. Yeah. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Okay. Our, our plotter is Larry Niven. The script is by John Byrne. All the art is also John Byrne, but the color is by Matt Webb and our editor. Colorist. Colorist. (laughs) Yeah, our editor is Denny O'Neill. And it's interesting that Matt Webb worked on, I think he was a colorist on all of uh, Byrne's Next Men books at Dark Horse. Yeah, it shows. Other work that came out the same month this did was Namer Submariner. Oh, and I forgot to write down the number. Forgive me, people. 
He was uh, Burn was writer, but the artist was Jay Lee. I think it's like thirty four. I, I my apologies, people. <laughs> I forgot to write this down. And sensation, sensational She Hulk. I forgot to write that one down. I think oh, it's. Hold on, just one second here, okay? Because uh, oh, uh, I've got him right here. It's Namor thirty two okay. and She Hulk forty five. All right, so he was pretty busy. Yeah. Considering this one was okay, he was just writing Namer. He wasn't doing right. Much. He had, that's when he stepped off, and Jay Lee came on as the artist. I really hated that artwork. Oh, you didn't like Namor's little speedos, his tiny, I, tiny I, little speedos. I did not like Jay Lee's work. Uh, I'm not know, a fan of his was, either. When you know the thing is, when you're reading John Byrne, and it's crisp, it's clean, it's got a realist bent, and then you go to that dark, muddy, um, angry <laughs> artwork. Very that, sketchy. That, that that Jay Lee was doing at the time, uh, it, it you know it's such a a juxtaposition of the of the of what we've been seeing. Now there are people that love this guy's work, and and as he's gone on, he's become a rock star in his own own right. Uh, you know, the, the, he's actually got action figures. You you go into the 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 comic book shops. There's action figures based on Jay, Jay Lee work. Yeah, based on Jay Lee work. It's all it's Batman stuff. Oh, I did not know I that. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that's frustrating because I'm seeing they've got, you know, action figures based on a lot of the modern artists, but they're not going back. And, you know, I've, I've actually got a George Perez uh, Robin, Teen Titans Robin, and that's the one that we got Burt Ward to autograph for Christopher. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, but that's an older action figure. But it's not often that you see... Uh, you know, Burns characters represented as an action figure. There's one Superman one out there that I've heard of, but I've never seen it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen any that's actually called out as being Burn inspired or Burn. But it would make sense to do that, wouldn't it? It would make sense, but it just it may be again a rights thing that they, they can't come to terms with him on it. I don't know. I mean, if DC owns the rights, do do they have to include him on any of that? I don't know how that works. Yeah, they would have to include him. I mean, it's yeah. just like the stuff they did with Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, uh, you know, you, you, you go back and forth on all that, and a lot of that goes back to the egos at hand. And oh, yeah. it's not, you know, I mean, there's, there's an ego on Burnside, but there's egos on the other side as well. And they just never wanted to give him that kind of credit. Well, they just don't want to. Neither one of them wants to give any ground up. So, yeah. yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, a little, a little brief, little background on this. Uh, this, of course, is plotted. So the main story is by Larry Devin, who we've stated before is a uh, a science fiction writer uh, of some renown. He is, I think, he's won very. He's won a couple. I think Ringworld won the Nebula or Hugo Awards. Mm-hmm. Well, he was apparently approached in the late 80s, this is a story I heard, by uh, O'Neill to help, and a couple other sci-fi writers, to help flesh out the backstory of the Green Lanterns. And he created a document called the Green Lantern Bible, which the writers, comic writers, were supposed to, like a a show Bible, they were supposed to pull from that for their guidance. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of that Bible, the, the story he came up with, the background, found its way into Ganthet's tale. So that's, I don't know how this, then he was approached later to do this book, but I know when he, he came up with a plot and then I don't know who the writer was, they handed it to some writer that he wasn't happy with the, the work they were doing. So somebody suggested Burn, 
because Byrne could not only write this, could script it, but he could also do the artwork. And mm-hmm. Byrne had met Niven uh, in the late 70s, I think, at the San Diego Comic-Con. Him, uh, Byrne, and Claremont together met Niven. And Byrne was a big fan of Niven. He'd, he was a... And in fact, if you if you look on the front cover, you see all the aliens that are coming, that are around this uh, galaxy. You see the one on the upper right that looks like kind of a white horse with two heads? Yeah. That is called a puppeteer, and that is from the Ringworld books. And Byrne sneaks this in to he's one of the issues of X-Men. I think it's 125. It's Anytime he has a big alien group scene, he'll sneak in a puppeteer. So there's one in the X-Men book. There's one There's one in this one as a Green Lantern. And there's one on the cover or the alternate covers of the Dr. McCoy Frontier Doctor. Uh-huh. The, if you saw the versions where he's – they're all the, the aliens sitting on the table and he's kind of doing – you know, he's – diagnosing or treating him one of them is a is a puppeteer so that was this was kind of a i want to say a dream come true for burn but he was excited to work with niven although unfortunately because the, the plot was already written he never got to work with him directly he just took his plot and scripted it and then did the artwork oh really okay i didn't know yeah that. so he was he didn't get to he was happy to work with him but he didn't get to quote work with him although gotcha. apparently niven is was happy with what he uh with what burn did so yeah. That was good. All right. Are we ready for a synopsis? Go ahead. Okay. Ganthet's Tale, or Green Lantern, Ganthet's Tale. Our story begins with a lie. A long time ago, in a DC galaxy far, far away, a blue world named Maltus existed. The race that would become the Guardians of the Galaxy, now this is DC Guardians, not Marvel, and the Zamarans have achieved a utopian society. They use their considerable mental powers and virtual limitless lifespan to unlock all the secrets of the universe, save one. They are forbidden to look into their own past. But one scientist, an arrogant scientist named Cronus, dared to peek behind the curtain. He pierces time and looks at the very beginning of the universe. He sees a hand clutching a galaxy. But in his arrogance, he probes further. He has to see who this hand belongs to. And in doing so, he unleashes cosmic energy that destroys his machine, and he has unleashed evil upon the universe. This is a lie our story begins with. We jump to present day. Green Lantern Hal Jordan is welcomed by a knock on his motel room door. It is Ganthet, a small being with white hair and blue skin. He is a guardian from the planet Oa, and unlike other guardians, Ganthet is more emotional, more irreverent, more human. Ganthet explains to a puzzled Hal that he needs his help to save a distant offshoot of his own people who had settled on Earth many years ago. A quick change of costume and recharge of the power ring, and the two are flying through the air in a green energy construct. As he approaches their first stop, Ireland, Ganthet explains his people are threatened by encroaching civilization. They find a dead houseplant, a genetically engineered tree that is home to his people, who in Ireland are known as leprechauns. He determines they abandoned the houseplant and migrated across the pond back to North America. There they find more evidence of his people, but again they have migrated because man was encroaching on their homes. They left some 500 years ago as America was being colonized. They press on as Ganthet tells how how his people came to Earth. In the past, the mental powers of his people were so great that nothing was beyond them, but coupled unlimited psychic power with a child's immature mind and you get disaster. A child's every thought 
feeling or fear becomes reality. They knew the only solution was the control of a mature mind, and as a result, they stopped having children. As the segregation of the sexes grew wider and the planet deteriorated into a dry, barren rock, many of his people left in search of new worlds. Some settled on Oa and became the Guardians and created the Green Lantern Corps. Others of them made their way to Earth. Ganthin concludes his tale as they locate his people at last. They are the same size with paler blue skin and live a simpler agrarian lifestyle. An emotional Ganthic greets his people explaining they no longer have to flee from the expanding humans and offer them a place in the cosmos with the other Guardians. He tells them of the Green Lantern Corps, of Oa, the Power Battery, and their legacy. He offers them a chance to become Green Lanterns themselves, but the leader declines. They are content to live there. Ganthit argues, argues with the king as Percival, an older being, tells how once they were advisors to royalty throughout the ages. But mankind eventually outgrew their magic and became suspicious of the blue folk, and that is why they went into hiding. To Ganthit's surprise, Percival accepts his offer to become a Green Lantern. Ganthit is outraged. He does not want old men. But before he can protest more, everyone is overcome with pain. Picking themselves off the ground, minds still reeling from the attack, Ganthet tells them it's time to go. It's time to go. The universe is in peril. He creates a green energy saucer and they head into space. We cut to interlude. As we see a high-tech craft floats in space, its occupants seem very pleased with themselves. Back to Ganthet. Ganthet explains what they felt was a corruption of space-time. Time itself is under attack. Tells how, how after the power battery tore itself apart at Oa, he built the Time Viewer and dared to look back in time like Cronus. He too sees the hand and experiences the same blast of cosmic energy, but what he sees he does not believe. A giant hand clutching a universe was not real, could not be real. He needed to look further back, but how? Ganthic cleverly looks past the past, the past into the, an earlier universe, a more opaque universe. He uses this as a mirror to look forward into the past. Stay with me, this all makes sense, I promise. What he saw was his race as savage and warlike, not the peaceful godlike beings every guardian believed was true. The lie we opened our book with was an origin story, Ganthet explains, created to keep an enemy from looking into the past to find a weakness in the guardians. The origin stories made them look more powerful the further you look back. Hal asked about the true origin of Cronus. Looking back through time, Cronus was blocked by the origin story, but he tried to look around it. But he did not use the early universe as a mirror like Ganthet. Instead, he tried to look into the past by looking past the end. His machine somehow linked a dying universe with its own beginning. Entropy was let loose into the universe, and a billion years of energy was drained from the start of time. The universe was born old. A billion years of potential life was erased from time. Ganthet explains the Guardians and the Green Lantern Corps were created to amend for the countless lives lost to Cronus' folly. Ganthet tells how the the effect they felt earlier was a result of someone attempting to cre recreate Cronus's experiment. He must start. He must start Percival's training if they are to save the universe. He tells how to mine the ship as, it begin, as he begins to teach Percival. He gives Percival several implants that will help him focus his natural psychic powers. Hal questions who they are going up against, and Ganthet tells him it is a former guardian named. And bear with me, Darlarkisbokpak. And his Zamarian wife, Thwarch Charchura, and their kids, Darth Arthin, Darth Artin, and 
Daran Chatuk, each with their own power rings. Hal asks how he is to defeat power ring users, and Gantha explains they are going to use hard science to get the job done. We cut to the craft from the interlude. The former Guardian, his wife, and two kids are watching the approaching ship. The Guardian does not want to use violence, but agrees with his wife the approaching ship and his three occupants must die if they are to undo Cronus' mistake. The ship drops out of warp and into an asteroid field. As Gantlet congratulates Percival on his success and his training over the last week, the ship is attacked. How counterattacks? It's the two children. We have several pages of power ring fighting, lots of constructs before Hal realizes the only way to defeat them is to put Gantlet's plan into action. He turns and runs. The kids think him a coward as Percival in full armor and riding a winged horse attacks. His mount is blasted, but he survives. Now, Gan now Ganthet is under attack. Hal races away at high speed and explains to us, re us, the readers, that any light source moving at high speed away from an observer is red-shifted on the electromagnetic spectrum. What this means is that the colors shift up, thus green becomes yellow. His yellow beam blasts the sun and vaporizes a ring from his finger. Lacking a ring to focus, the sun attacks Ganthet with raw green energy. Hal rushes back to help him, but is attacked by the daughter. Hal and Ganthet are knocked out and come to inside the other ship. They are bound with a yellow metal that blocks Hal's ring and Ganthet's powers. Dolly, the former uh, rogue guardian, and his wife are using their machine to watch as Cronus tried to look into the far future. Entropy is beginning to flow and it is causing them to lose focus on the exact time Cronus links the end with the beginning. The daughter is worried about Percival. They cannot find his body, but her father tells them if they are successful, the universe will be reborn anew and none of this will have happened. An angry Ganthet demands to know why, what they are doing. Dolly explains he is the creator of the origin story. He feels that, that he had not, if he had not created the origin story to block looking into the past, then Kronos would not be consumed looking, looking into the past. Zero Catch-22. They plan on preventing Kronos from looking into the past via the future, thus preventing the linking of the end with the beginning. They then plan on pushing Kronos into the last moments of the universe, killing him. They will stop Kronos from committing his crime, but condemn him to death for the very crime they prevented. As the father monologues, the daughter is searching for Percival's body. She finds him very much alive, and charging again in armor and flying horse. The son joins his sister, and we get more ring action. Percival, learn Percival learns from each defeat, keeps building larger constructs. First a viking ship, then a large keep. The sun races at the top speed, intending to smash the castle, but he is tricked. The structure is actually intangible, and he flies through it and into the time machine. The controls are smashed, and entropy erupts into the universe. Dolly tries to save the machine, but they have lost focus, and the entropy is eating everything it touches. His wife is horrified to see Dolly consumed. Ganthet and Hal survive the, the eruption, but each has withered with old age. They find the wife, who is also aged. The three are still able to see into Kronos' lab. Remorseful and horrified, she explains that it was they who broke the barrier between the past and the future, and they are to blame for the linking of the beginning and the end. Kronos' device was too primitive to break the barrier, but theirs could. Their arrogance allowed them to believe they could prevent what they actually caused. Kronos takes the blame for a crime they were trying to prevent but actually caused. It's a predestination paradox. Hal is rejuvenated thanks to Ganthet, and the son heals the mother. Ganthet tells them they must return to Oa to face judgment. 
Percival returns and is welcomed by Ganthet into the Green Lantern Corps. They all return to Oa, leaving the daughter to find the glowing skeleton of her father. She reaches for him, but her hand is scarred and eaten away. She will not be able to return her father's body to Oa, and she speeds away knowing the evil unleashed will never pass away. Epilogue Hal and Ganthet are back in Oa as the mother and son are on trial. Ganthet explains he shielded Hal's mind so that the other Guardians would not wipe his memory of the events. Hal takes his leave of Ganthet knowing much of his faith in the Guardians is is based on a lie. The end. Boy, that Guardian Hall is all yellow, isn't it? Yeah. Whew, that was a long one. That, that was a good was, one. That was, yeah, it was, took a while to write it, but it was, uh, yeah, that's a... You know, my first impression on this was, A, it was a gripping read for me. It sucked me in, and I, I couldn't put it down. And I had to read it twice to make sure I understood exactly where everything was going. But this story... And, I, you know, again, it's not Byrne or Niven that, that, that made this choice for this to happen. This was those guys at, DV, D, at DC, but this ticked me off. Because it rewrote? Because it rewrote retconned. One, of those, the, one of the, yeah, retconned one of the basics of the DC universe that we've known. And basically, somehow, it uh, totally undoes anything that you read in Crisis of the Infinite Earths. Because that's not possible anymore based on this. So none of that happened. You're talking about the hand with holding the, yeah. clutching the... The galaxy, yeah. Yeah, I I, I, I guess I wasn't, I haven't read enough DC, but they, I read about that, that that was a staple kind of in DC that that had been shown several times. And Well, you know, the, there was a, a miniseries that I read, uh, Tales of the Green Lantern Corps. It's a three-issue miniseries. It's a great miniseries if you can find it. I I've got it. I've actually got all three of them. And it, uh, it basically gives you the whole story of Crona. It's not Cronus, it's Crona. And, you know, did what I read happened it, to him. Did I read it wrong? Is it Crona? Have yeah, I been saying Cronus this whole time? Yeah. Okay. My apologies. But, it is Crona. Oh, yeah, it's Crona. Oh, my, I'm sorry. My, I was, my brain was seeing Cronus the whole time. And I, <laughs> the whole time I was reading this, I was reading it, my brain is Cronus. Well, I'm, I'm not going to take off for anything. I mean, you actually tried very hard to pronounce all of Niven's characters. Yeah, that was yeah. that's why later after I pronounced them once, like they became the daughter, the wife, the son, the daughter. You know, yeah, naturally, yeah. <laughs> but um, the 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 tales of the Green Lantern Corps, you know, they showed what happened to Krona in the fact that the the Guardians didn't, you know, kill him, sentence him to death. They just basically shipped him off in this kind of galactic traveling unit that that took him all over the place kind of like being in the phantom zone so to speak yeah and he wound up crossing into the realm of death and uh allying himself with i think his name was necros which is funny because john Byrne worked with a, an inker named necros bud la rosa uh <laughs> now wait a minute now again if you get my my ignorance is it necros from the blackest night so that's not who i'm thinking I haven't read Blackest Night. I couldn't tell you if that is or isn't. But who's the guy that comes back and brings everybody else back to life? Isn't that Necros? That I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. But okay. in, in, in this story, he was you know the embodiment of death. Okay. And he was trying to find his way into our universe. And so Chrono and him were working together to do that. And it took the entire Green Lantern Corps to fight them off. And we got introduced to some longtime uh, Green Lantern characters through that. And we got to see some old ones too. Tomari or Tomare, depending on how you want to pronounce him, uh, was one of the main characters, of course, as he was one of the captains of the guard of the Green Lantern Corps. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, Arisa, who was just brand new Green Lantern, uh, started off in that book. And we also got introduced to uh, Arcus Chumak. Are you familiar with him as a Green Lantern? If I saw a picture of him, I don't, I don't recognize the name. Well, his character was really, really interesting to me because when he defeats a foe, if a, to give him an honorable death, he must consume them. So he actually fought the previous Green Lantern, defeated him, and, and then ate him. Ate, and ate him. And he had to stand trial for that. And basically they said, no, you're worthy to be a Green Lantern. So That sounds familiar. Yeah. And I've always been looking for that character in, in the other Green Lantern books throughout the years. And they seem to really kind of sidestep him. And I was looking at this cover trying to see if they may have had him on here. And I was disappointed for a number of reasons, though, because you see all these Green Lanterns on there, but you don't they're, – they're not really in the story. I mean, they have that one splash of them, of Green Lanterns, of the Green Lantern Corps. Well, that's just it. Most of these on – and because I, I haven't read Green Lantern in a while, in a while I've forgotten most yeah. of them. But I don't think any of these, except the woman looks familiar. The rest of them don't look like recognizable – yeah, she looks like one of the elite guard that I remember yeah. from the tales. But the rest look like just other. Than, of course, there's a puppeteer that I mentioned earlier, but the rest yeah. are ones that I guess, uh, except for Hal Jordan, that burned different just, aliens. Yeah, yeah, he just created. Yeah, which that, which now, I thought I, was oh sorry, which I thought was interesting that what somebody this is a quote from Niven that he said the reason why the the ring works why a power ring because. He said a power ring will fit on any shape alien. Right. Now this, I, I'm reading a digital copy here. I, am, I actually, it turns out yeah. I've got a physical copy in my collection, but it's up in the stacks. And if I remember right, isn't the uh, Ganthet's tail, isn't that gold or like a foil kind of? It's, I'm reading an actual physical, it's a, it's like a foil stamp. It's silver. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because the, the digital copy, it's actually hard to read Ganthet's tail because the scan of it couldn't uh, relate Pick it up. that. Yeah. yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's just kind of a silver foil stamp. And if if there's Hot any stamp. one complaint I've got throughout the book, uh, now, now now you know this was done at the same time that he would had been doing, uh, or he had just finished Na- his run on Namer, and if you remember in Namer, he made a good use of Duo Shade, and of course he did that at OMAC, which is like the year before this, I believe. But he didn't use Duo Shade in here at all, did he? Not that I can see. And the other thing that I found interesting is is this picture that he's got on the front cover of the hand holding the galaxy doesn't look like the one that Steve Englehart, uh, not Steve Englehart, but uh, Joe Staten had drawn uh, time and again, or the one that George Paris had drawn in Crisis on the Infinite Earth. It's, this is a completely different representation of it. And I don't know if it's... If he was, you know, using something from Kirby, which I'd never seen, or or something else, it could just be if it's just. I mean, if somebody said draw draw a hand clutching a, a a galaxy, yeah, I'm gonna have to break down and read Crisis one day. I have it. I've never read it. Oh, I mean, you know, it's it is a good read, but at the same time, I was so immersed in the DC universe at the time that I knew most of the characters and everything that was going on that. You know, I didn't sit there and go, wait, what's this or what's that? There are so many characters and so many different things. If you've listened to the the show that Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey are doing on Crisis. Right, yeah. You know, they're they're covering it issue by issue. And they're able to sit there and tell you all the side stories and everything that's involved in it and, and whatnot. That that would be a big help 
uh, to, to reading it. Cause if you go into this, uh, you know, my, uh, my father-in-law Nestor, he was sitting there and he couldn't get through the first issue. Cause he's just like, I don't know who everybody is. It's just, it was just so, you know, he knows who Superman is or the flash is, but you start showing, you know, all these other characters and everything. It just, yeah, it, it but, was just too much. But I, I think a successful miniseries should work on its own. You should be able to read it and enjoy it without having to read all, every side story. And I, I think maybe it was, it's just that I know Crisis is a very dense, dense you know, read. This is the one that started the massive crossover events that they did every year, you know, millennium or invasion. And if you haven't been listening, uh, on the fire and water network, they're doing, uh, a, a run through of invasion, including all the side books. And, uh, I've been enjoying that, the, those podcasts an awful lot. Um, there I've been listening to the, to Gardner and Bailey list, uh, talk about crisis, but I, I don't, I've never listened to the fire and water. Ah, no, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff on the on that network, um, and you know they've they've got you know their own they do their movie commentaries or their discussions. They just started doing these mini uh, podcasts where they're like they did they put one out to talk about the Doctor Strange trailer. It was like a five minute freak, and it was like a true five minute. It was really like yeah. Five it wasn't minutes, the you know? two hour five minute freak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so. <laughs> But uh, no, I'd recommend almost every one of their shows. I, 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 uh, I, I've even listened to the ones that are doing on Who's Who, where they're going through every character listing. listing. And um, now I was never a big fan of Who's Who as compared to Ohatmu. Oh, yeah. The, I, I had all the Marvel. Marvel Universe. That was always my favorite. But listening to them talk about it, they got a genuine love for it. And they're sitting there telling me things about the characters that I never knew. But then again, I wasn't as interested in going through the who's who as I was interested going through the Ohatmu because Ohatmu gave you so many bits of information about the character I thought was really, really cool. Well, yeah, Ohatmu seemed to be, uh, for the most part of my experience, who's who was basically like a one page per character. And Ohatmu would sometimes give you three pages. But Ohatmu is giving you all colors, you know, whereas who's who would do what they call that serpent where they would have the colored shot of the character and then behind them would be a monochrome, you know, right. white and red, white and blue of the of you know, all the character things. And it would be an original piece of art done by the artist that was handling them in the day. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it to me, that didn't appeal to me. But it, 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 listening to them talk about it, they're telling me things I didn't know. So I'm really enjoying that. And they've also got another one called Ohatmu or Not. <laughs> where uh, they've got a panel of, of girls that uh, they're presenting the each character from Ohatmu, the second edition, which is my favorite edition, uh, the deluxe edition. Deluxe. That, where they go through and they started off with Abomination and they go right on through. And they're sitting there taking a look at these characters and then saying whether or not, you know, they're they're hot to, you know, would you want to go out with them or, or whatever. Oh. <laughs> and it's funny because like every one of them to a girl said no way would they go out with Angel, Warren Worthington III, drawn by Byrne. I don't get that. Well, are they going like, for instance, for the Hulk, do they consider the Hulk or they consider Banner? Well, they haven't gotten to the Hulk yet. They're still in the A's. And I mean, they just finished uh, Wondar the Aquarian and Angar the Screamer. And, you know, of course, no one wanted anything to do with the Abomination. 
Well, and again, would you go with Blonsky or would you go with the Abomination? The Abomination, because that's the character as he is. Yeah. He doesn't transfer. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't transfer back, back and, and forth. forth. True. Right. And have you seen what Blonsky turned into? Well, again, I I don't know what Blonsky looks like in in modern day. The last I saw of him, he had gotten half of his face uh, destroyed by like acid or something. It so was uh, toxic waste. That was yeah, when I, waste, that was yeah. during the. I think when John Romita Jr. was was drawing it. No, Jeff Purvey's. He was. It wasn't. What it during was, the Romita run? No, it was right after the McFarlane run, and Jeff Purvey's was doing the artwork on there, and his artwork was so different from everybody else. Uh, and then right after him is when Dale Cowan came in, and I, I don't know what you ever thought of Dale Cowan. To me, he was like, um, he drew everybody like Byrne drew them, but thinner. Oh, I, I've always pronounced it Keown, but I don't, yeah. know, how, I don't know how it's actually pronounced. Uh, I'm a big fan. I, yeah. I loved his his Hulk stuff. Yeah, so did I. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it an awful lot. And But around the time that, that uh, I guess it was during the Pantheon, and that was when he left, I guess, was when I actually started dropping out of comics and stopped buying the Hulk. That's when I, I stopped buying the Hulk before I think the Pantheon story was finished. Because that's Peter David was still writing that, but yeah, Peter David um, was writing, and he was, you know, a, again, we'd already seen so many different psychological profiles on the Hulk, and as I understand it, Peter David must have done like nineteen different psychological profiles of the Hulk during his run on there, you know, finding different ways to break Banner up and break him yeah. down, and, and and all that, and you know, once once he started getting into that amalgam, you know, creating that amalgam personality that they had the Hulk on, I kind of started losing interest. We have really gotten off track here. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, you know, we talked about this cover here. And again, I was talking about the, the galaxy in the hand and it was, you know, just not the one that I'm, I'm used to seeing. Um, but I guess we can go on in. Yeah. Let's get in with, uh, do you want to kind of get, you just want to go like we normally do, or do you want to give overall impressions? You just want to go through it and we'll talk about overall at the end. You know, I'm not going to sit there and do a whole lot of panel by panel, but I will say that, you know, this is at the time when Burns' art was, uh, you know, really, really good. But I think that it seems like, especially when it came to rock and rubble uh, throughout the book, that he seemed to kind of take a shortcut. His rubble was not as well defined here as we've seen, you know, in other books. Uh, I'll go with that. I will say... Overall, I was a little disappointed in the art. I thought if you compare this to the work he was doing on, at the same time, Next Men and his She-Hulk run, mm-hmm. I thought that was much more polished. Now, that may be because, well, I know in the She-Hulk, he was, he's inking himself. Yeah. And he was inking himself on uh, Next Men. So I don't know if this just looks a little rushed. Just a little. It's not. It's not bad. I don't want to say I will, bad. I will never say rushed with burn. I will say lazy. Well, that, maybe that's what I'm trying to say. It looks yeah. like he wasn't. His full attention wasn't on it. He was yeah. not. It wasn't la- a labor of love like She Hulk was. And again, he didn't write the story, so he's having to go off of somebody else's, you know, work to that, create it. Right, and that maybe have something to do with it. I don't. And it, I don't we don't know. If he was kind of brought in at the last minute, so if maybe he didn't have enough time, and this is sixty-four pages, this is like yeah. Now that first page where we actually get to see Krona, um, Blue Sinestro, what? <laughs> Blue Sinestro, yeah, Blue, Blue Sinestro, Sinestro, yeah. Um, and, and you see the very bottom panel that makes me think of a George Perez panel, the one with him at the bottom. 
Yeah, with the with the funky lighting on his face. That that Yeah, that doesn't look that doesn't look God, I mean the inking is look at the inking on the collar. It just doesn't look like burn. Yeah. And it looks really and if you look at uh well it's but, back towards the back, but if you look at the hand, the hand looks very sketchy. Yeah. The That's, hand I'm looks sure. very sketchy. And but the thing is here, and I think because you're take a look at the way this page is laid out and the way Byrne is using the color green in here. He is basically already setting the tone here in that the guardians are and or whoever's involved have gone in and done their manipulation. Oh, you think that's why it looks green because that's, that's the cover story? Because yeah. he's looking at the cover story. With green, yeah, yeah. yeah I, that's another thing. The coloring. I don't want to say it's flat. There's something about the coloring. It looks almost a little too saturated. It looks. I think there's too much, and this is may be a product of the time. It looks a lot of the backgrounds and some of the shading has. Uh, gradients in them, which is probably a digital. Yeah, they they did this. They, it's almost like they were going to do this as a mini series, a comic book mini series, and at the last minute they decided to go ahead and put it into one prestige format. And so, therefore, you've got you know comic book setup on everything, and then they put it on the beautiful paper. They use a beautiful printing, and it just made everything come out flat. Yeah, it does, and it just doesn't look. I almost really can't put my finger on. It just doesn't look dynamic. Yeah, it doesn't look good. And maybe it's the it's maybe it's the printing process, or maybe it's just yeah. Now it it took me a second read through to catch the uh, the bit with the tie. Did you notice that? Oh, I noticed that right off where it keeps changing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I noticed that right away. I thought that was a that was a kind of a that it's like Rorschach's mask. It yeah, and that's just a kind of a nice little. Little kind of thing Byrne put in, but this first this first page where you first see Hal, Hal looks rough. Yep, that does not the the when he's greeting me at the door. These aren't numbered, but when he's greeting me at the door, and you get kind of a, a three quarter page. Yeah, he looks okay, but the shot of him ushering him into the room and the next one where he's closing the door and he's kind of angry. He looks like Peter Parker. Yeah, it does not look With gray hair. Yeah, With- and even the bottom page where Ganthet's looking at underneath the lamp. And That's then, but no when he detail. puts on the costume, when he puts on the costume, and he's got all the definition of a Ken doll. Yep. Well, <laughs> I ne- I never noticed this. I guess when you put the costume on, it also fixes your hair. Yeah, it fixes your hair and makes it look like Superman. So and I guess it shaves that. you too, because see, he has a he has a stubble. Yep. Wow, I never knew that. That is one magic ring. Yeah, it is. It is, and <laughs> and yet all he can think of is giant fists and Hot Wheel tracks. <laughs> Well, <laughs> he's a test pilot. True, true, true. But, <laughs> Wait, is that Playboy that the Guardian is looking at? I believe his it house is. getting ready to char- charge his ring. I did like the fact that the Guardian was like very laissez-faire about the whole ring charging ritual, and yet Hal was still very religious on, on doing it and I, saying the oath. Right. I think that's establishing that Ganthet is more, uh, not, not cynical, he's more... Uh, Irreverent, he doesn't. He doesn't. I think he's. They've stated that he's one of the younger guardians, right? I thought he was older. Was he older? Okay, maybe my mistake. But he doesn't. He's not caught up in all the ritual and all right. the uh, the official processes that the other guardians. He's not not quite as stiff as the other guardians are. Yeah, but he definitely 
you know, it shows things that I didn't ever see, you know, again, again, my Green Lantern experience, I read some a lot during the seventies and eighties, but you know, when they got away from Hal Jordan, I lost interest. Yeah. I dropped and, and, most and, of mine is through the Staten and Inglehart run mm-hmm. up through until it became Green Lantern core. And then I read through the end of that, which is right up. That's right up to crisis, I believe. And after, so I never, I didn't come back to it until, Death of Superman tie-ins with Emerald Twilight. And then I just read those that I dropped off again. So I know nothing of Kyle Rayner, nothing at all other than who he is. Right. Right. I mean, all the Kyle Rayner I've ever read was in generations. If that tells you anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, going on as, as he's sitting there telling them the story and they're traveling about even the tree. Um, it just doesn't look right to me. You know, the, the house, the house, house plant. plant. Yeah, as, as he put it. And to me, it looks like it's the coloring. There sure is, for a book about guys with green rings and green power, a lot of yellow that seems to come up on, on the constructs that they're, that they're using. And I know that they have to differentiate the color, but it, it does make a lot of the stuff that's supposed to be green look yellow. Like that, that what, if you're looking at the, the, the bottom half of that page, it's got the house plant. Mm-hmm. You see the thing that they're coming up in that they're traveling in. It looks like a yellow hockey puck. It's got some, a lot of yellow into, in yeah. it. Yeah. And that's yeah. just, uh, again, as you'd probably say, they're probably to differentiate the, the, it from the green glow around it. It's a little more, even the background above that where Ganthet's talking about the joke was on him. His, that background has got a lot of yellow in it. Yeah. Now the next page, when he opens that up and you see inside the house plant, all the honeycombs and everything, Mm -hmm. that makes me think of the movie Chronicle for some reason. (laughs) Chronicle? Really? Yeah. I think it was the the thing that they found in the cave. Oh, I I didn't see that at all. Yeah. So they keep going around trying to find these people and they find they've kept moving. Basically, and... Yeah, what what did you think of this before we kind of get to to the story of the uh, Maltesians? What did you, you know, think was going on? If this is actually Niven's story, right. this whole kind of ecological uh, cautionary tale that's going on here, what did you? How did you think that fit in with the book? Uh, there are parts of it that that bugged me. Um, I you know sitting there thinking about this. It, he brought in, you know, cer- certain earthly things. And this is why Hal Jordan was in it, is that he wanted to bring in earth- earthly things, like the the whole Percival story, the whole night thing. Right. Um, but I, I almost wish that he had gone to a completely different planet and used a completely different Green Lantern. Don't get me wrong. I, I You know, the, Hal Jordan is my Green Lantern. But, I, you know, it's like he didn't have to do that. He could have done this with any Green Lantern. Well, if he... Thinking on this, because that, that's another of my uh, complaints, that Hal Jordan is written, I don't want to say he doesn't have his voice down right, but Hal Jordan is very flat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's very he, flat in this book. He's well, not, he doesn't really, other than the green shift that he does, the, the, the chroma, you know, the spectrum shift he does at the end when he's fighting the sun, mm-hmm. Hal Jordan doesn't really do anything. He doesn't need to be in this book. Right, he is he is our character that that we're looking through his eyes. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 a surrogate for the audience, and he's yeah. had to be there to explain. And he does it. He seems to be a little lifeless. So I guess what I mean by being flat, he is not. 
he doesn't particularly get upset when Gantha tells him. Right. Now, when he's telling him he's going to look for his people, I can understand Hal's not going to be, okay, I'll, I'll go off with you. I guess he feels he has to because he has to obey the Guardians. But when everything starts going south and they have to go and rescue the universe, he doesn't seem particularly angry or passionate or concerned about that. I mean, I'm jumping ahead, I know, but. Well, no, I mean, but you know, that's that's the, the thing here. Number one, you know, you had Larry Nevin putting a story together and Byrne, who is not, you know, a big Green Lantern guy. Mm-mm. I mean, how many Green Lantern stories has he done? I, I can only think of this one and the one in, you know, during the whole millennium. Well, he did the he action had, comics where he teamed up with Superman. Right. Oh, yeah. The, it was Superman with the Green Lantern Corps, but it wasn't yeah. Hal Jordan no. so much. So, uh, you know, you, so you didn't get that 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 sense of the character. We read that character, you know, through a, a number of years and got to, you know, see a lot of what, what goes on with Hal Jordan, Carol Ferris and Tom Kamuku, Kamuku, Kamaku, Kamaku. I don't want to say the other name they gave him, <laughs> but I, I mean, you know, you got to see we got to see Hal Jordan through all that. So we knew a, a personality. And I, I think that Byrne didn't really know that. And, and again, you know, there's Larry Niven also to, to sit there and consider in all this. Yeah, and I don't understand. I don't know if if how much of that's coming through from when they say someone plots someone. I don't something. I don't know how. You know, there was something raw that, that is, go, or how there, there is something I wanted to go back to just just for a moment. Um, wait, am I? Going backwards or forwards? No, actually, I think it's it is. Are you linking the beginning with the end? Yeah. Okay. It's actually the next page when they're when when he's sitting there explaining to him about the maturity and how you know a child would swat a, a, a mosquito and therefore all mosquitoes would vanish because yeah. you know th- that or someone would get killed by what did they call this uh, a terragar terragars so, so all terragars disappeared. Uh, and then the very next panel where they talk about no breeding, but you look at those men and those women there and they're, you know, it's basically, it looks like almost like they're at a nightclub (laughs) and the guy's looking at the woman like, yeah, I could do that or I could hit that. (laughs) They, yeah, they look a little on the the woman in pink is a little scantily clad. I will say. Yeah, because you're getting, I, I, you can't even call that side boob. That's bottom boob. That's bottom boob. Bottom boob hanging out there. And, uh, you know, it's definitely an invitation. And again, because like, what is she wearing down below? She's really not. She just got a rag hanging down. Yeah, it's just drapery. It's all. Yeah, that's, it's all that's drapery. All it looks like a, it looks like a costume right out of uh, original Star Trek. Yeah, like something William Thies would do. Well, my my problem with this with this uh, story that the reason why that this basically explains why the two races separated is one. I don't think. If you know his his example is that a, a kid gets you know swats a mosquito and suddenly they're all gone, he sends them all to the cornfield. I don't think a race could survive because you know this kid picks a fight with that kid and suddenly that whole that kid's gone, his whole family's gone. I think you'd do enough of that if the whole planet's that way. It would be if you've ever seen Forbidden Planet the way he describes the 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 Krell, where they had a machine that could project matter and do anything for them and overnight they all died because when they went to sleep their id came out and all, killed everybody so I think that would be uh, a similar situation and I think the <laughs> it's kind of a knee jerk reaction to well I guess we can't have kids anymore 
We gotta wait till everybody gets mature. No more kids. See, they gloss over it, but the logical conclusion to that problem means to keep only those that are mature enough to use the powers, meaning that they probably wiped out the children. That's possible. I would think they would treat them more like Vulcans treat their kids. Why not train them? I mean, apparently, from what we see in Star Trek, that the Vulcan child, their mind is trained very early to have that discipline. Why not take that approach to this instead of just, well, well, of course, we don't know what they tried. That may be what the various attempts were made. Maybe that's what you're talking about. Maybe he said, okay, no more kids. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, sadly, Tim, you're not you're not blessed with children. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've got a nine year old right now, and I tell you, just trying to put them put them in a situation where you know we don't remember being at that age, and every emotion is magnified twenty thousand times beyond what we feel right now when something happens. Uh, what hormones do to you, what, you know, everything that's going on. That's what I'm saying. I don't think this, this planet could survive. Yeah. To even that point. They, I, but, but what, what, what I'm saying is that, you know, it's not like the Vulcans where you can sit there and control them. And also they don't say how long it takes for them to mature. It could be a hundred year span where they go from being a child to uh, a tween or a teen or whatever. Yeah, it could be a thousand years. We don't. Yeah, we don't know. And and so that makes it you know doubly more dangerous or even more dangerous beyond that. Um, man. So yeah, I I I think they wipe the kids out. Honestly, that makes this book a lot darker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot that's dark about this book, despite the bright colors and shiny True. pages. <laughs> and that same page, we gets a really cool burn tech ship. Looks mm-hmm. a little bit like a bird of prey. Yeah. And we get the, uh, I don't know if any of these have ever been established at these other races that they said they think they colonized a million other planets. Obviously, one of them was Oa and one of them went to Earth, but I don't know if, I don't know if my Green Lantern history to know if any of these other races well, did, are guardians. Well, did, did one of them maybe go to another universe, wind up in the ocean and become the Atlanteans for Marvel? <laughs> Possible. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about the leprechauns? You know, it, uh, it didn't bother me or anything. Um, in fact, I liked uh, some of the things they did with them when they showed them as being the genies in India and, you know, other characters being used throughout history. I thought that was actually kind of kind of cool. Yeah. You know, uh, so, you know, that didn't bother me. There are people that, that actually kind of complained about that on Burn Robotics and you know John's re- remark is, "Wait a minute, you you accept yeah, a, a I read man that. coming to Earth from, from from Krypton and a woman with the magic lasso that forces you to tell the truth, but you get you draw the line to leprechauns." I think he was missing the point. It's not that it's unbelievable there would be leprechauns in the story. I just don't think I don't think it's I I just don't think it was right to oh I don't know how to say it. It's a little cutie pie to say oh well these people came and they were the leprechauns. Uh, I, I just don't know how it fits in with the story. I really am wondering the first. Well, you the, know, again, I, I I don't think of them as being the whole Bagosh and Bagora. Oh, right, right. Take my lucky charms. <laughs> I think it's you know the legend is all it bespeaks, and you know it doesn't mean that you know they're actually going out there and doing the little potato dance or or whatever <laughs> it is you know that that they're doing. Uh, it's I, again, I, I think that 
you know, people are sitting there looking for the the buckle shoes and the the green hats and the clovers and yeah, I don't think that's it. I think with with Percival tells him that they were uh, advisors to the king and and royalty. I think mm-hmm. they are the they car they are what is behind every myth of every little magical person. Right. That's uh, you know so that I can understand, but just well, I guess they settled the last place they settled. Well, I guess when they were in Ireland, they were leprechauns. Now they're back in the states. I don't know what they are. I mean, they could be they could be the myth behind gremlins. They could be the myth behind fairies, behind uh, any number of things. Yeah, I just, it seems more like the more now that I read this the way you're saying it, they thought maybe it was a, a limited series. Yeah, it's almost like the first half, maybe the first third of this book is different. It's so different than the rest. It's almost like it's really just a way through Hal Jordan to get to know Ganthet. Right. Because he's, you know, other than Jordan, and I guess you could say Krona, everybody in this book is new. No, this They're all new characters. Mm-hmm. So we're having to get to know them. And that's why I thought it was a little, I don't want to say disjointed. It seemed a little out of place. Right. You know? It's, you know, I, I, and I'm sitting here looking at the the characters. It's um, it's very funny when, you know, Hal's standing there at the top of that page with Ganthet to one side and all the other ones are around him. They've all got kind of like 80s hair. Oh, they do. They definitely have. Well, and, and I guess it's because of those headbands on some of them that that, <laughs> that 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 does that. And there's also that one that looks like they got a mullet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is an actual mullet. So the girl that's holding it's on the left side. Yeah, yeah, and then the I guess the leader he's got kind of a mullet going too. Well, they've all got that kind of. Uh, well, yeah, I guess you could consider that. It's, and I didn't understand why his when the king first says, "Well, we've been driven, you know, we've been driven out out of place after place. We've having to move all the time. And this is the last place we can, you know, our last place to hide." Someone Ganthet offers them a chance to join the other guardians and go out into the world. No, no, he doesn't. He he offers them a chance to join the core. Right, and but that, I didn't get that. I didn't understand that. That's again, I didn't understand if. And I'll ask you this: Do you think Ganthet? This is before they they feel the uh, the ripple in time or the attack in time. Mm-hmm. Do you think he is strictly here to rescue these people, or is he recruiting? I didn't understand if he knew that was gonna something was going yeah. on, and he was trying to recruit Green Lanterns. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Well, then there he, should be a little more sense of urgency. He seems more pleased. That, hey, he thinks, hey, I'm, you know, I'm offering you a way off this rock. You can come back and join the rest of us guys. Instead of it's like, oh, the, you know, the universe is in peril. I need your help desperately. Well, I think that's you know, Gantt is is to borrow from. Uh, uh, Man of La Mancha, you know, he's tilting his head at windmills here. This whole segment here, where he's sitting there talking to him, and you know, I, I can get you out of this muck and mire and take you off to Brave New Worlds as part of the Green Lantern Corps. That that right there is just such a, a pipe dream, and I, it, it was something that didn't make sense to me that he would, you know, sit there and 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 try to preach to them about. It seemed to make more sense for him to come in and say, "There's a great evil coming." And we need every one of you able-bodied to come help. Exactly. They may they may have responded differently to that instead of they 
the 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 king seems to treat Ganthet as well. You're a city folk. Why are you coming in here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's the city slicker. Why are you trying to come in here and uh, pull us out of our home, which is the home they've always known? So that's why I don't know if it's if this is just something Ganthet had been worried was gonna was gonna happen, and then when it does, he's like, oh, well, now we have to go and take care of this. Or was he aware of it? Thought it was gonna happen, or it was encroaching, yeah. and that's why he was. If he is trying to recruit, he's not doing a very good job of, of selling. There's any danger? He's he's like more like he's offering to go on vacation. One thing I've got to say as a compliment to both Byrne and Niven here is that nobody speaks in some ethnically Irish or Cockney or you know they're not writing anybody as being right. accented. In such a way that it's insulting, racially insulting. Yeah, I never thought about that, but that's that's a good point. Yeah, I do like the way Byrne draws Percival. You know, there's there's such a character in there. He does, yeah. He Byrne's always drawn kind of a, a wizened old uh, man. I again, I don't understand why Percival is in this. I think he shows up later in the books. I, ha- I don't know enough of Green yeah, Lantern to I mean, know if it, he does. I know it's his first appearance. I don't know if it, if, he, if he's done many others. I also like the style that Byrne, you know, took to, you know, when he's doing the India. Artwork. Yeah, that's cool. He's kind of and emulating then, the yeah. style of that era. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really cool. I like I like to see him go out of his wheelhouse or whatever. Of course, for the one in Britain, all I can see that is all I can think of is Monty Python. Because it looks like Gary Gellium <laughs> used to draw him. <laughs> when he would do his cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't understand Ganthet's outrage when Percival wants to come and he he's he's all upset that he's you know I didn't come here to to you know take shriveled old men. So I Yeah, and and this this whole thing of him angry this is a a being that's how old? Well, he billions says billions of years. of years. Billions of years and all of a sudden becomes inflamed and angry like that. I, I just, you know, it's not something that you would expect to see from a guardian, which makes me, you know, come to think that maybe Ganthet uh, is not entirely sane. Well, he mentions later that he was, that he was, he was driven yeah. mad when he saw what he saw, but yeah, he it, seemed to recover pretty quick. Not well enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think this is again to show the contrast between Ganthet and the other Guardians, because uh, that he is more emotional, he's more human mm-hmm. than the other ones, but I just didn't understand why he got so upset. Yeah. And I thought that when he did, when he's throwing his little tantrum down on the, on the and Jordan's kind of laughing at him, I wanted his tie to show the same emotion. I wanted, I don't know what what it would be, but I want his tie to look angry. Yeah. <laughs> angry tie, yeah. Angry tie. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Now, uh, the next page is where Hal is shown bent back in a way I don't think any person could possibly stand. Well, I think he's falling, but I certainly couldn't do that. Now, over to the right, uh, between him and Ganthet and down below Ganthet's leg, uh, or beside Ganthet's leg, doesn't that almost look like music? Like written music? In between his leg? Well, if you look look at the lines that are there (laughs) under Hal's head... And oh yeah, Ganthet's torso, and then they're behind Ganthet's uh, leg, and the end of the, and the yeah. I think the it's panel. the the kind of cross hatching makes it look like a uh, music. Yeah, musical notes. Musical notes. Yeah, 
And it's like really, it. really weird. But I can see he's got those lines as, as striations on, on the trees. Yeah, it's just to show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to show, uh, I guess it's you know, to show a shading. And of course, then they, uh, then they recover. And then this is when he suddenly gets concerned. Now there's a sense of urgency. And yeah. it is, you know, his. So no this, time his, for further debate. Yeah. And the fact that he says, see, now why doesn't he recruit, recruit some of the other, his whatever we're going to call his people, his people. They obviously can see that there's some kind of, they felt it too. They, sh- they should know there's some kind of danger. Well, I think what that was to demonstrate is that Percival was the only one that demonstrated a fearlessness. It could be, but he had asked to join before. Right. Oh, but I guess maybe I could, that's what your point is, that he stayed. He decided to uh, stay with Ganthet instead of deciding, no, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay uh, back yeah. here on Earth. And then we but get I, little... I think it was really just, that was the machine to get Percival with them. Yeah. That, that's all That's all that was. And that's why nobody else, you know, joined up. And you can see that this could be right there. That could be end of an issue. Yeah. End of issue one. And then we get the, um, which looks like a chair. It looks like the. Uh, well, yeah, it looks like the, the what Krona was sitting at when he was, you know, looking at the beginning of the universe. Oh, yeah, it does. I was thinking it looks more like. Because uh, it's even got the screens. And you can see Krona's reflection. Yeah, he's got, he's got multiple uh, screens there. Now, it looks like the, uh, what's the chair that, it's in DC and it's the new gods. He, one of them flies around oh, in a chair. Met, uh, Metron. Metron. That's what, that's what popped in my mind when I first saw it. Hmm. It's a nice design. It looks, it's very unconventional. It doesn't look like anything. Yeah, but any the kind next, of ship. The next page where they're showing the ship traveling and and all that, to me, was very unremarkable. And again, it it seems almost lazy. Well, it yeah, and you can tell this black background. He has done. He has used uh, a brush or something to kind of dab it. it. Looks like he's dabbed at it. Yeah. But yeah, the the ship looks looks very roughly rendered. It's not, and it's it's just there for exposition. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he says, uh, said we all affect, uh, we all experienced it. So there have been several such events in the past two billion years. When they occur, younger guardians wonder, but older guardians seem to not have sensed anything. I didn't understand that. Why it would affect younger ones. And maybe that's saying young people are more about change and the guardians are set in their ways. Yeah, I think that's definitely what that's supposed to be is treated on the difference between young people and old people and speaking as old as as old people <laughs> oh we're right in the middle <laughs> that's true that's true they're gonna come up with those robotic bodies any day now and we'll live forever <laughs> or they'll just download us into a computer yeah I've, I've seen transcendent with johnny depp oh i'm sorry it's not a very good movie no <laughs> no and we get ganther making his Time viewer, so you can watch a little TV. And he looks back and he sees the same hand and the same. I thought this was kind of clever, and this must must have been Niven's doing, where he's talking about using the the looking past the past to reflect the look back at. It's almost like looking at something with a view mirror. You're or with what I thought was like Medusa. You're looking at Medusa through your shield. 
Right. So you're not being affected by it, but you can still see it. It's, it's like that. So he gets to see the, the big lie. And I guess this is the big retcon of this, mm-hmm. that the Guardians were were more warlike and they weren't the peaceful, benevolent beings that they had basically been lying to themselves. And they used tanks. Yep, they used tanks and armor and everything was green. And shot out yellow. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of yellow in that in there. Now, I did like that that um, white and black space that they used on the Krona image there on the bottom right-hand panel. I don't know if you've gotten that far yet. Oh, yeah, where it's rever- kind of reversed out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did like that. That, uh, that looked really cool in that. And then putting him all in silhouette. And then that when they did that on the next page and they've got kind of a fade there, that that's actually a cool effect, but it almost looks a little weak. Yeah, it's... Oh, it's yeah, it's definitely an effect that he's used to. You see it later when the entropy really explodes. Well, I actually did some reading up on that, and um, what what John Burton because someone asked him, you know, okay, someone asked him basically how did he do that effect, and he says the inking effects. Well, remember what I've said elsewhere about how the tool doesn't matter, only what it produces on the page. Those effects were done with wadded up toilet paper dipped in ink. Oh, and so then he just reversed it out and made it black, made it white. Right. Or how the printing process. <laughs> it's funny because the guy that asked him about it responds back, you know, he's got this metal image of John Byrne sitting at his drafty table pondering how to draw a picture of an imploding black hole or some other insane cosmic event and jumping up subtly and going, got it. I need a turkey baster and string. <laughs> Well, I'm sure if you probably could look at the stuff probably Kirby used or any of the uh, the uh, old timers, you know, we did that in my graphic design classes. We in topography, we had to experiment with, with forming words, and we were told to bring in anything, household stuff, whatever, doesn't matter what it is. And we dipped in India ink, and we started making, and you start seeing it differently, you know, and you start seeing it as letters, and you start forming things. So. As you said, whatever whatever tool needs to uh, make the job work. Yeah. Now we're getting into the part of the story, though, um, where I had numerous questions that dealt with the writing. And that is, you know, as Hal's, you know, as, as he starts um, getting Percival ready and Hal takes over the spaceship. Which that's a nice, I like the fact that he's drawn, usually when you do this outer space construct, Mm-hmm. It's just a shape, but this one you see, Burn is at least Hal is designed is put in engines and other parts to make yeah. this ship work. As a as a pilot, somehow he knows a lot about those engines, huh? Well, the ring does it all for him. It's more like make me a spaceship. <laughs> yeah, and the ring knows how to do it. That's that's pretty cool. And then a very uncomfortable scene where Ganthet is imp- <laughs> putting implants on. His spine? First of all, and, and, and the other, with one of the spine, it just looks like you, you almost expect a little puff of smoke to come out from the, from the from his drawers or whatever. Well, it's more like, all right, show me in the doll what Ganthet touched you. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what it seems like. Oh, man. And, uh, you know, it's like I, I actually like the, the, the art through this part here, though, um, especially the way he's drawn Hal. Because Hal just looks, you know, I mean, he looks like he should look. Yeah. He looks pretty pretty cool. There's something almost um, regal in the way he's drawn Hal. Yeah, I never had any trouble after that first page where Hal would look so 
just so rough and sketchy yeah. and unformed that uh and somebody did i noticed somebody had pointed out that burn tends to draw the domino mask a little larger mm-hmm. than other artists does do our artists do well I, I like the bigger mask it makes more sense if you're just gonna hide your identity right right of course it didn't help ryan reynolds at all well no but <laughs> i don't think the size of his mask was the problem with that movie yeah now we get introduced to the characters with names that are so long that I don't want to say. Uh, and we get introduced to the, um, what was it? What, what was the, the nickname that he had? It's Dolly. Dolly. That's what she called it. His wife yeah, calls right. him. Um, who, in some panels, he looks like Ed Asner in the face. <laughs> he does. I give you that he does. It's a, it's a little short crop of hair. Yeah, and, and once again, the women are dressed in such a way that says, hello, sailor. <laughs> well, that's just, uh, it, apparently the uh, Zamorians, is that, am I pronouncing it right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Became almost Amazonian. They became like a warlike uh, when they broke off from the guys. Yeah, but no fashion sense, whatever. Who wears gloves that look like a turd? Well. I mean, <laughs> Sorry. I know it's it matches color hair. It goes with their hair. Well, it's interesting. I just not thought of this, but because these are the two rogue Zamoran and Guardian that apparently they, you know, they had sex the old-fashioned way and had two kids. Mm-hmm. Much like beginning in Man of Steel, yeah. where, where uh, Jor-El and his wife decided to, you know, do it the old-fashioned way and have a kid. Yeah. You know, um, the next page where they show, you know, the the ships come out of warp and um, apparently they've used some Grecian formula on uh, Percival. I didn't understand that. I didn't. Yeah. I guess they're applying that he is. Maybe that's because of the implants and he's harnessing his natural power more. Why he has obviously grown younger. Grown younger. Yeah. But, you know, I almost feel like they should have put Ganthet in a wife beater there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm sorry i just found that really really funny well my question is it's been a week because he says you've responded well to this last past week of training so to me they've been on this ship for a week mm-hmm. well have we ever established that these rings can produce food and water because what has hal surviving on that's a good question i mean the the, the guardian and, and percival i'm sure can live on their own energies but maybe maybe well, obviously, the Guardian is also recharging Hal's ring because he didn't bring his lantern. Yeah. So maybe he is somehow giving off a, I don't know, life force or something that or, Hal is. Or they could simply say, ring, bring us a milkshake. Yeah. Maybe they're stopping off at planets, you know, to get takeout. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, the the next page is when they get attacked. I Okay. I'm trying to remember my Green Lantern, you know, power thing here because... Hal Jordan being the Greenland that he is, he's got strong, strong will. How can anybody just pierce his construct? And why doesn't it cause him some sort of, you know, disruption or pain or whatever? If I remember right, you know, Do you'd, they? You'd, have, you'd have to have a will stronger than than his in order to be able to, if you're a Green Lantern with a Green Lantern ring, you're face to face. It's the Green Lantern that's going to have the stronger will that's going to win that battle. It you know it's not that they're on an even playing field. Well, I guess you could retcon and say that the kids have more of a natural. Obviously, the guardians their own natural energy that they're using, 
mm-hmm. is probably stronger than a Green Lantern, even Hal. So these kids are born of a guardian and a Zorn, so maybe they just have a natural, just a natural higher energy level. But has it, is it, I mean, I don't remember this when I read Green Lantern. Is it established that if their construct is broken, that they get some kind of feedback? Feedback I, and they, I, I they sense recall. pain? I, I don't recall. I mean, because, you know, again, you're dealing with their willpower and their willpower is what maintains the construct. Yeah. So if the construct takes physical damage, it stands to reason that that would have some sort of effect on them. You would think so. They would feel something. Yeah. I I mean, you know, you think of it kind of like, you know, in the Fantastic Four movie, the first one, when the invisible girl is maintaining that force field around Doom. At the end, she starts getting a bloody nose. Yeah, because she yeah, it's because of the effort and everything, and it's the you know, force of Willems, force of, of, of what you know she's going on there. And of course, that's also a sign of a cerebral hemorrhage, and she definitely needs to get a <laughs> CT scan. But uh, you know, <laughs> I, I again, I don't know if that's if that's how this works here. Uh, again, it's been I don't, a long time since I've read you know a lot of Green Lantern. I don't think I've ever seen that. I will say this: I do like the way that Byrne has decided to treat these constructs normally you see and they break apart like they're they're made out of concrete or something solid and they break apart like they're glass almost yeah. here he's treating them almost like they're a liquid plasma yeah and yeah. they're just uh kind of evaporating this would be really cool if you could see this with live action with some nice cgi yeah if that effect but again you know if, if we saw it cgi they'd do something stupid with it you know and then I'd <laughs> well what was it that that yeah in like the the Green Lantern movie when he was trying to get away from the sun, wasn't he using some sort of turbine jet? He was using uh, two jet fighters pulling him away. Yeah, but I mean, again, a jet fighter using I, I, you know again a jet which needs some form of gas going through it. Well, I think you have to consider it. Those are just his. <laughs> I know it's yeah. his construct and it, you know, that's the way it's supposed to, to, to work. But it, 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 it always, you know, begs the question. I always like, uh, in, in Iron Man, I was trying to figure out what it is. It's propelling, you know, it's, it's, it's the repulsor technology, but what is the, the actual propellant? You know, there's no fuel being used there except for it's, the energy coming from his arc reactor, but there's gotta be something creating that, propulsion that's just it it looks like you you know in the film it looks like he's exhausting some type of gas like it would be and in the comics i know that they talk about his they call him jet boots or rocket boots but they never talk about you using kind of some kind of fuel so maybe it's burning i don't know maybe it's absorbing hydrogen and burning it now the 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 logical answer to everything here is as even as far as the food situation goes is accepting the fact that matter and energy are interchangeable, in which case the ring can actually create food. The ring can actually create a jet exhaust. Well, if that's the case, and yeah, that it can act like a replicator and make him whatever he wants to eat. Right, but I, you know, you don't see that normally happening. You only see him creating constructs that go away as soon as they stop thinking about it or willing it. And hasn't it been established that? Hal Jordan, when he became a Green Lantern, was the first one to think of creating constructs. That the other Green Lantern just use it mostly as like a power beam when they would use it. I, I don't, I don't know that he was necessarily the only one. I just think he, you know, he was by far the most famous. Yeah. 
but uh, no, I, I that's that's a hard question to answer. I don't know. I seen me. I've read that or seen that. Some somebody write in and tell us. Tell me yep. if I'm wrong. Well, yeah, yeah. This whole section here that we discussed kind of shows how little that we actually remember or know on Green Lantern. So, if someone's got a, a good take on it that uh, we you know we're not understanding, please let us know. Yeah, and then we get Percival, which is. It's kind of cool that this seems natural for him. That this is how he would he would present himself on a, a Pegasus and in full armor, more like kind of a with a kind of a Thor helmet. Of course, it yeah. doesn't last very long. No, it gets blown away right away. <laughs> gets, uh, but his courage was great. His training was not sufficient. Well, that's on you, Ganthet. You didn't train him well enough. Well, you only had him a week. That's true. And he was too busy regenerating him. You know, it's not like you know they're on Dagobah for however long, 20 minutes. <laughs> he can lift all those uh, asteroids out there for training. Now, I got to say, I both love and hate this, uh, the artwork on the scene where Hal is flying away and he does that twist around. You love it and you hate it. Well, for, for one, of course, you know, we see the yellow shift, which which is what we're supposed to be seeing. And I love the way he's got the light curved as he's done his twist around. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Hal himself, there seems to be a lack of, I, I don't know, there's something like less definition or whatever. And it could be on the colorist because he's also seemed to lost the, some of his gray temples there. Yeah, there's a ton. Uh, well, I'm sure because as we, well, we'll get to later, but, you know, they, he had to kind it, of get creative like, about it. Yeah, he looks almost like the old Gil Kane uh, artwork rather than. Well, I think the problem is that there's very little weight in the lines the lines are kind of flat and kind of monotone if that's if that's a word that they're not very they're not showing a lot of definition up right almost like it's unfinished it's like his first pass and he was gonna go back later and kind of beef it up Mm. and what's funny about this redshift this is the only thing i remember because i bought this when it came out and i haven't read it since then and that's the only thing I remember about this story was the – I thought, wow, that's – that's because that's the kind of science you normally don't see in a comic book other than, I will say, Byrne did a lot of that stuff when he was doing FF. He brought a lot of hard science in. Yeah. That's the only thing I remember about this story. So did did he get a haircut there? Jordan? No, the the guy he hits with the beam and, and fries the ring. It looks like he got a haircut. Uh, no, no, it's that's right. That's just a ring. That's the ring evaporating. Yeah. Well, what do you, since we've been looking at this for a while, what do you think of all these asteroids? Again, I I think it's lazy. It looks almost, no, I'm sure he has drawn it, but it looks almost like he's cut them out and pasted them in there, doesn't it? You know, I'm not sure. I really don't. They don't benefit the story, I'll tell you that. I mean, it's fine for them to come, you know, if they want to come out of warp in the asteroids, but after they get rid of them, they are really not helping the story at all. Mm-mm. But I, I, they they look, again, just lazy. I mean, it doesn't look like the good rubble and rock and stuff that he has done in the past. Um I, I, you know, and the thing is, is like, you know, this is the period where he spent a lot more time on the figures than he did on the, the backgrounds. And uh, I, I wish he'd, he'd spend a little more time on the background. Well, even if you look at the stars, I mean, that's just, that's either 
black ink or it's or it's white out yeah but it looks look at the one where hal is first leaving where he says i hear you get that and i'm almost ready and he's right the panel right above where he twists that just looks like he just took some just really dabbed it on yeah i would really love to know if he was under the gun if they you know he had if he came in late and they said you've got to you know you've got i don't know a month or three weeks or six weeks or however long to do this and he just did the best he could in the time he had yeah I, you know I don't know I, th- I think he made a decision somewhere that this is how I'm going to do it for the entire book yeah that's true it's consistent throughout yeah but you know and like I said you know we noticed that he didn't use the uh, duo shade hey uh, okay you see the the page after Ganthet gets blown with the power there you want to rephrase that? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, the the page where it just shows Hal in one panel, then on the other panel he's heading back down and he's looking through some device. Digital telescope, yeah. And then she hits him with all that power. And the shot of Hal looks really, really funky, especially his, his left leg, like his calf is distended funky. And just his pose and everything, there's something so unnatural about it all. I know he's getting hit with all that power and everything. Yeah, it, it does look a little wonky. It does. Yeah, it's yeah. the hand looks a little odd. It almost doesn't look like burn. Even the mask gets rounded in a funky way. It's really weird. Yeah, it is a little. And how does that on the next page? How does that yellow construct prevent Ganthet from being able to use his power? I mean, doesn't it emanate from him anywhere? Well, it seems it says it radiates a frequency of energy which negates my own power. Oh, yeah, so it's yeah. it's like a yeah. dampening field for him. Yep, you're right. You're right. And it's again, there's some more hard science here because he later says I've determined it's made out of uh, what's he call it? Crystalline. Oh yeah, they appear to be single crystal carbon fiber filaments in a, a um, ceramic matrix. Yeah, that's all Niven right there. Yeah, that sounds like Star Trek talk to me. Yeah. And Ganthet's head looks a little little flat, like it's been squished. Yeah. Oh, and there's Ed Asner on the next page. <laughs> yep. You can almost hear that Granny Goodness voice. <laughs> I do like the way he's uh, drawn Krona as kind of a distorted image that they're trying to basically focus in. Yeah. But who's... Now, the the woman that he used for the, the red-haired, the darker red-haired one, the daughter... There's a, I, I don't, you know, looking at her, we've seen her face, her model before, and I'm just trying to remember where. Isn't that a little, it's not Lois Lane. It looks a little, oh. And her eyebrows actually seem to go above her hair in some spots. <laughs> yeah, they do. She looks a little like the, there's a story in Superman that Byrne was doing. Where the woman absorbs all this radiation and becomes this kind of... Rampage. Rampage. And he thinks yeah. it's Lois. That, she reminds me a little bit. One, she just looks... This woman just looks upset all the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. She smells something bad all the time. Something. She's she's angry. <laughs> yeah, and on the next page where the image of Krona is coming in uh, a lot more clear. And boy, I tell you, Darley sure does look like Ed Asner in that one <laughs> Right out of J, right out of the scene in JFK, he been getting into my files. <laughs> well, 
on the page before, I don't didn't understand that we're talking about the daughter. Why she's so concerned over Percival? She's later. It seems like she's concerned for his that they. She's concerned that they had to kill him, but then she's more concerned that they that she didn't find his body. And it says if enough viable tissue survives, uh, he can be at least cloned. Do you think she means well? He can be saved, or he can if if that's the case, and he can be cloned, and he can you know another enemy is. I, I didn't understand that. Me either. That at all. I, I didn't understand a lot of the motivations of... I understand Dolly's under motivation about he wants to undo kind of... Or at least him and his wife and their arrogance. They think that, well, we can fix. And it's a, that paradox where they wind up causing the, the one thing they're trying to fix. But but didn't he cause it in the first place? That's, tr- that's right. So it's one yeah. of those... It's like the Terminator going back in time. You know, the Terminator creates itself by going back in time trying to prevent the person who's going to destroy it and that's yeah. the way they leave their you know it's one of those kind of things that'll make your head hurt yeah yeah so that's when you know so he's monologuing about how they're gonna you know make everything better and I guess they're gonna reboot the universe it's gonna restart but he I, expects everything to still happen just a billion years later I don't know. Or I don't know if that's, Yeah, I don't know uh, if that's what if they think that they're all going to kind of transform around him. And it is one thing that bugged me about this whole story is it seemed like they're they're dealing with things that the fabric of the universe, the fabric of the universe at the beginning of time, and there's got to be ripples from this that it has an effect anyway. You know, I would think so, but we don't know of any, and it's never spoke of again, at least that, that I'm aware of. Well, I had read that a lot of this gets retconned out as, I guess, before, when's the last time they rebooted? Not the New 52, before that. Was that? Infinite Crisis. Infinite Crisis rebooted. I so, so I guess by then, 2006, yeah. a lot of this had already been changed, which was, because I know chronologically this comes out, this came out in September 92 and... Green Lantern Volume 3 was about issue 34 or 35. So it was about not quite to the point where Hal goes nuts. Yeah, this is before Parallax and all that. Yeah, thing. which just explains why the... Which, I guess we can kind of get into the whole the whole hair thing that if you... And I didn't notice it until I read that. If you read this, you'll notice that the way Byrne has drawn him, he's not drawing him, drawn him as if he has that Reed Richards hair. It's not until later, after he's rejuvenated, that he has the hair. And that was his idea that, well, this will explain how suddenly Jordan has white temples. And I guess the editor said it liked it and agreed to it. And either they forgot to tell the colorist. So the colorist goes in and has to kind of fake it as best he can. It's Star Trek all over again. Yeah. And then that's, <laughs> then, so then, you know, Berm gets, Berm, Berm gets blamed for, well, he, well, you just screwed up. You know, his yeah. The tractor said, "Well, you just screwed up. You didn't draw it right." It's like, well, no, this was a because this was meant to kind of it could fit in. There's no specific time other than this is. Yeah, you. I guess you'd have to say it's right after it could fit in between the end of the Green Lantern Corps and before Volume Three started up, which is where he has the temples, the the, the white temples. So this could fit in between there. Hmm. Now, Percival 
seemed to become a pretty quick study on strategy, or did he not? Well, I guess you could say his fighting techniques are maybe based on the the people on Earth that he was advising. So maybe it certainly they certainly influenced his look. So maybe that's maybe that's where his strategy uh, is coming yeah. from. But he says, "I he goes, I learn, I learn more from every defeat." And he says, "Spoken like a true Green Lantern, the sun does." Yeah. And if you notice the keep that he creates, it looks just like the same keep that they fly over when yeah. at the beginning when they first go to Ireland. Yes. <laughs> of course, I would think the sun would could pull up, but he couldn't stop. I guess he couldn't stop, and he's not even looking. He's like, and, "Oh and, no, he and tricked more me." To- more toilet paper art. <laughs> oh yeah lots of, that's see that's what that is okay I thought that was he did that with a brush that so is toilet paper yeah and you know the funny thing is when I look at that when I first looked at that it made me think of alien coiled up oh I was thinking the exact same thing when I was looking at this bottom panel yeah alien three yeah yeah and then the next page you get to see more of that it just it it's really a cool effect I like it Especially where where Doily's body is getting ripped up, you know, ripped up there. Yeah, it's getting kind of eaten yeah. away. Yeah, that just looks painful. I want to say this: this is all done. Even though there is some digital coloring in here, this is all done. There's if this was done now, there'd be a lot of Photoshop effects in there. There'd be blurs, and there would be yeah all this distortion. And this is all done uh, with pen and ink. Yeah, and then you get the full toilet page toilet paper page but he's gone in and de- definitely done some cool effects in there he's made that that coiled up infinity on the left yeah and it's just it almost looks like a bird with a beak on the right side you can see the eye of the bird and then the beak there down yeah i can see that it looks to me it looked kind of like an octopus or a squid or something yeah yeah i can see that as well yeah i mean it's a, it's a good representation of just Chaos. Just now, let me ask you. Even my digital copy is not perfectly aligned, so I don't get the full sense of how of this. You know, the the, the single image it was supposed to create. You're looking at it in, in the actual prestige book, right? Yeah. Do you yeah. get Do you get a sense that there was something a, a living thing here, or, or or? No, I didn't get. I didn't get that. I I wasn't sure at first what this this these more solid pieces are in the middle, but I get, I'm assuming that's just the machine kind of being shredded and rendered and just twisted and compressed and just like what you see in the next page where it's just just bits of itself. Yeah. And then we get a, uh, <laughs> a uh, which for some reason Hal looks like his head is the size of a basketball when he's become the old man. Yeah. But I do that's- like old Hal on the next page. Missing teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Missing teeth and everything. Yeah, I, I I don't understand it. And what what I also don't understand is whenever they de-age somebody, how come their hair goes back to the old color? Wouldn't it have to grow out slowly over a period of time? And wouldn't Hal have needed a major haircut? I guess he could cut his hair while he's well, maybe de-aging and making his hair grow. Maybe back maybe Ganther did that. He uh he just he kind of gave it a well, it grows back. Yeah, it definitely grows back to where yeah. And I don't know. Ring, I mean, what's ring. funny is even Ganthet looks a little. Yeah. Uh, he looks a little older himself. 
Yeah, and and you know, it's, it, it, at least the Green Lantern costume is designed to shrink and grow with the wearer. <laughs> True. But the the outfit that the Zamor, Zamorian is is wearing should not do that, and uh, it makes me very very afraid. I'm glad Byrne didn't do any close-ups ever during that period. <laughs> well, maybe it's uh, maybe it's design. Maybe it's more of an energy construct too. Maybe it's not real clothing. Yeah. <laughs> and then we see, uh, like we see, uh, and uh, Dolly's skeleton looks larger than he did when he was still alive. It looks like that looks like a full-size human skeleton. Yeah, yeah, I, I noticed that too. Boy. And then we see. Corona, and then she realizes that oh, we are the ones that screwed up. That we, uh, you know, basically put the blame on him, but we're the ones that, in trying to, you know, I guess, like I said, it's a predestination paradox by trying to prevent what the event they actually caused the event. And so they're going to surrender. And what do you think the guardians will do to them? I don't know. I don't know what the guardians do. Will they stick them in the? Well, the power battery still exists. By now, they'll stick them in there with Sinestro. Hmm. And then Krona, of course, has earned his place in, and not Krona, I'm sorry, uh, Percival's earned his place in the Green Lantern Corps. Core. And then it kind of really has, I mean, it goes to a dark place, and then it has kind of a happy ending, other than, and, and they get with the daughter at the end when she finds her father and... And withers her hand Withers off. her hand. Yeah. And... It made me think the father was almost like Negative Man, you know? Yeah, he does look like Negative Man. I wonder if... Does she show up again? I mean, I, yeah, I'm wondering if either shows up again because it's possible that that he's not dead in that form. Could be. Maybe so, he comes back. Yeah, definitely some some energy going on about him, and that's some sort of primal energy, I'm sure. So I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to research that to see if he does ever show up again. I don't know. I didn't do a, a lot of research on that, but and see now you can see definitely how is drawn. To have temples. You can just see if you were looking yeah. at a black and white, he's drawn him. And he even looks, if you look at him uh, on the page that when he's up on the upper left and he's got his hand on Gantha's shoulder and says, uh, you know, that's what you did, didn't Gantha use some of your life force to replenish me. Not only does he have the grain temples, but look at his face. His face yeah. looks a little more mature. Yeah. He's drawn him as maybe 10 years older. Yep. Yep. So I thought that was kind of an interesting choice and then the the ending with with him with Ganthet saying he didn't he didn't wipe his memory so now Hal knows the truth the final panel seems to suggest that is this is this laying seeds for parallax possibly i mean that he is now his faith in the guardians is shaken a little bit that he thought they were probably all yeah you would have to yeah knowing but that that I, I, I still have a problem with the whole the whole story in that regard. I I can't reconcile that versus what I already know from before. It was a retcon that to me doesn't work. It doesn't work if you don't want the the guardians to be revealed as being infallible. Well, I, mean, I always it, I always knew they were you know I always knew they weren't infallible. But I mean, just the 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 retconning of the the, the beginning, so to speak, and the whole history of the hand there. It just, you know, goes against what I, you know, what I've read and knew, not just, you know, from the perspective of that's what we've been told, but what other stories did that affected that moment in time. 
we've seen interaction with that moment in time. Okay, so you're you're more upset that it was revealed that that was an origin story, a fake, an illusion. Right. That the garden is created and it wasn't the, the real thing. I mean, I, I would really love to know more of the, the story behind this, that if he was, if Niven was approached to give some backstory to the, the Green Lantern Corps and he wrote the Green Lantern Bible so that the writers would have something to pull from and I guess they would be, I don't know if they were, um, had the liberty to, to use part of it or not, or if they had to stick to it, that then he was given the chance to tell this story. And he had, and he said a lot of that, some of it he put into one of his own novels, and I can't remember the name, but most, a lot of it went into this story. So that was his way. And maybe that's because he's a hard science fiction author that he wants to put kind of hard facts to this backstory. And that's what it seems like that's what he did with this story. Instead of the more, you have to admit that if that hand was not an illusion, it was not an origin story. And that's a much more romantic idea of the birth of the universe than what we get in this story. Oh, you know, it just dawned on me and I, I, I went and um, confirmed it. He, uh, Larry Niven was responsible for the Kazenti. In the Star Trek story, you know, the, what was it? Um, it was one of the animated series episodes, I believe. The Kazinti. The Kazinti uh, weapon or the Kazin. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, did he, oh, did he, no, that, did he write the, oh, it's, it's the, I know what you're talking about. It's the weapon that can change different forms. It's a. Oh. Transmute, transmute. Right, it can change. Yeah. You have different settings on it. It can change into different things. And it's one of the better episodes of the animated series. I cannot. It's and it's called a something weapon. The, I can't, the slaver weapon. Slaver weapon. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Huh. Wow. So yeah, I knew I knew that that was hitting me from somewhere. Of course, whenever I think of Niven, I always think of David Niven. And of course, Sinestro <laughs> was like uh, a red David Niven. Oh yeah. So <laughs> very funny. Anyway, uh, overall, what'd you think here, though? <sighs> Well, overall, I will have to say that my memory cheated a little bit because before I read this, I remember my recollection is that I I like this story because it had some hard science fiction in it. On rereading it, it was okay. I wasn't uh, I wasn't in love with it. I thought the the pacing's a little slow. Uh, I, again, I thought how it was written kind of flat. Some of the other characters were not fleshed out as much. Now, granted, I give that to the fact that this is a a one shot. And they're all new characters, so we don't get to spend a lot of time with them. Right. But the story I thought was it had an interesting premise to it. I didn't the the whole thing with Percival and the other offshoot, I think doesn't belong in this story. I wish that was taken out. That seems like strictly a plot device to get, like you said, Percival to join them and become a Green Lantern. Right. And maybe he goes off and does something else, I don't know. But I think you could have done this with him approaching Hal <laughs> with knowing that this problem exists and that the danger and cut out the whole Percival thing. Maybe he, he could have picked up another Green Lantern or Percival didn't really do enough to, I mean, yeah, I guess he kind of saved a day, but you could have written it around. Actually, he did more than Hal did because Hal doesn't really do a lot in the story. So if well, I don't, we don't grade books, but if I was going to grade it, I'd give it, I'd give it a six, 6.5 maybe. Out of 10? Out of 10. Now that's, the story, the artwork, I know we're going uh, back to the bins here. Artwork, I'd give it a 
I get a solid seven on the art. You know, I, I won't, I, I, I'm going to go 6.5 on the artwork myself because I, I think that it's compared to everything else that he was doing at that time, it was definitely a step down. I agree. That's why I said I, I was disappointed yeah. in the artwork compared to what he was doing at the same time he was doing it. But as you said, he was more of a uh, a gun for hire for this instead yeah. of his ideas. That that must reflect in what the artwork looks like. Definitely. definitely. And, and, you know, as far as the story goes, I got to say, though, you know, I, I read this uh, in, in one sitting. I was actually really sucked into it. So I, I really enjoyed it, and, and, and then I found that I glossed over some of the facts. So I had to go back and read it again to make sure I was really understanding what was going on. And even now, I'm I'm kind of like, wait, am I grasping this correctly? Because it 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 really didn't contradict itself, but I kept wondering if it was. Well, it's one of those that you you try to you yeah, can kind of accept it on the, on the surface and say, okay, this is what happened, or. You try to really think about it hard. Uh, it's It reminded me kind of of trying to figure out when we were talking about when we did our OMAC coverage. And we yeah. kept going over that because that was all time travel. Yes. And, we kept, and that was alternate realities and changing histories and stuff like that. So that reminded me a little bit. It wasn't quite as deep as that. So I'm curious how this would have turned out if Byrne had written it as well. Yeah. If we would like it more or less. Again, I don't know because I don't know what Byrne's level of knowledge was on the whole Green Lantern core in history um would he have you know he never had the benefit of having written the bible so he at least had some background yeah he's pulling from his own created background so yeah i, uh, I would think that if burn he certainly had the cloud at, at the time that he could have worked on a green lantern book if he wanted to and it, maybe he just just never been interested in but it's interesting because in when he did the ff he brought a lot of hard science and science fiction back to the ff yeah, and, and the one thing I one thing I found is that he definitely used resources of, of other people on 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 these things because like even this here, someone went onto his um, website and was asking him questions about it, and he goes, "I really don't understand any of this stuff," <laughs> which I thought was really really funny. Well, maybe if it's not his idea, I mean, it's not that heavy of a of a concept, but. It's it's pretty heavy, I guess, for for what you were finding in comics then. But I guess my point was he he obviously liked science fiction, and Green Lantern is certainly the most science fiction of anything at DC, unless yeah. you count you know he did Doom Patrol that was that was science fiction, but that's more pulpy science fiction. True. So True. I don't know. Again, we don't know if if he was you know you know. And, and, and for knowing his love for Niven, if this was given to him and he said, hey, you got two months to do this, he's not going to turn it down and get to work with Larry Niven and illustrate something he wrote. So right. we don't know. We don't know. So I don't, I'm not going to judge him. I can just judge by what we see on the page. Overall, if you get a chance to read it, I, I think it's actually a, a pretty decent read. I think if you're um, a Green Lantern fan, you should read it. Yeah. Because it certainly introduces Ganthet, who I know goes on to – bigger and better things. He plays a pretty prominent role. In fact, he's the one that gives the ring to Kyle Rayner. Yeah, and it says, uh, from what I see here on the uh, DC Wiki page, it looks like um, Percival um, went on to actually be involved in the Parallax storyline. Interesting. And I've just lost part of my connection, so I can't see it anymore. <laughs> well, do we want to... Uh, you got any final thoughts? Uh, no, I think we've, co- we've covered everything we can on this story here. Yeah, I agree. 
uh, you said we have an email. We have something of reader uh, contribution to yeah, read, or do we want to save did. that because we're already three hours into this show? You know what? I think we'll we'll save it for another time because yeah, we've definitely uh, uh, gone gone over on this one here. And uh, but I mean, we've got uh, an email from Jason Trenner, a comment from Gene Hendricks, and from David Thompson. But I think we can save those for the next one. Oh, and nice. really, we we would like to get you know uh, you know some feedback. Uh, you know, the, you know this feedback is good, but we we definitely want to get some more feedback to know what people are thinking about the show. Uh, you know, and and people have pointed out things that they'd like for us to uh, to cover, and that's that's definitely welcome because it gives us great ideas and absolutely some things we've covered and some things we've said mm, we'll see. You know, and some things I, I I don't think we've turned down anything. I know that um, we even at one time uh, at some time in the future definitely want to cover things as odd as Willie and the Chopper Bunch. Yeah, there I yeah. want to cover some of his emergency books. Yeah, from Charlton. And you know, there's there's Iron Fist, and um, you know, even the, the the writing jobs that he did on some books like Iron Man and the Avengers. And that was one thing that Jason Trenner had uh, recommended. You know. Uh, He'd like to see us cover that period of the Avengers after Simonson left that uh, burn. Well, maybe right. we should consider our next book to be a strictly written, written something, pick something and it's your turn to pick next. So maybe something that he has just written and not done the art on. Yeah. Now, of course, our next one should be our next show is going to be a Star Trek show, isn't it? Right. We're going to yeah, we'll do another Star Trek. We don't know what that's going to be, but it'll be another in our series of year long tributes to a uh, 50 year old Trek. And in April, May, May is going to be if we want to kind of give hints, because there's a certain movie coming out in May that has comic book tie ins that we may be doing some shows that tie in with that movie. Yes. Woo. Got a lot of fun coming. Yep. A lot of work. But. All right. Well, I think that we've covered all the ground we're going to cover tonight. Unless you got anything else you want to add? No, I think I think we're good. I think we've uh, I think we did a good, honest coverage of this, and hope people will uh, not be scared away by how long this show is going to turn out to be. But <laughs> you can always skip ahead. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks everybody for third degree burn. I'm Brian Hughes, and I am Tim Elliott. By authority of the mystic guardians of the universe, on the far distant planet Oa, Al Jordan test pilot becomes the Green Lantern, a cosmic crusader whose magical power ring at his bidding accomplishes the impossible. In his continuing fight against interplanetary evil, Green Lantern, guardian of the galaxy. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gotta get burned at gmail.com. 
That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to tutufreaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows. Until next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. That's going to be our intro. You're sneezing. Yeah. Seven sneezes, that's my average. <laughs> my record's 28. Seriously? Seriously. I, I was working in a Sopapilla booth at Casa Bonita, and Billy Nix came in and blew some pepper in my face. Everybody stood around the booth and counted. By the time I was finished, I couldn't even stand. I got sent home from work. Yeah, I think you'd pass out. Yeah, they also had to get, Billy Nix had to go and clean up the entire Sopapilla booth because I sneezed all that time. <laughs> <laughs> in there that was uh he didn't feel so good about that oh i bet